Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. of the morning, Dan and Amy, and um, we start today by going to the old mailbag. Got a little feedback from uh, a segment we did yesterday uh, where we uh, zeroed in on Oak Park River Forest High School as well as uh, Nutrier. Uh, the response uh, that I'm talking about specifically uh, with respect to our letter, our correspondence from a listener, is OPRF. I mentioned OPRF had, uh, and this is right out of the communist pamphlet that uh, circulates in Oak Park and River Forest, the Oak Park Leaves or whatever they call it. I, I mean, I just mentioned that because they mentioned it, okay. that uh, Oak Park River Forest is no longer considered a, quote, exemplary, unquote, school in Illinois. It fell out of the top 10% of government high schools because, well, because of the test score, the proficiency rates, the scoring, the data. But uh, the excuse was, well, we have a, a significantly bigger uh, proportion of our students are English as a second language learners, and that counted against our ranking. Right, because that's what happened, right? And I noted, I noted that at OPRF, where they um, celebrate diversity to the exclusion of intellectual achievement, there's a uh, 54 point spread between white and black students at OPRF when it comes to the question of the percentage of students reading at grade level. Hmm. Yeah, but nonetheless, uh, 94% of the students graduate, even though 58% are proficient in reading, and 99.3% of the district teachers are rated as excellent or proficient. So um, no disconnect there, but um, uh, at least not seen by the denizens of Oak Park and River Forest. But I see one, and so I talked about it. And, um, you know, we just discussed, as we have many times before when it comes to OPRF, because they're so self-satisfied about what a rotten school they have. Well, this drew... uh, missive from Miss Cynthia Mungerson. She writes, Dear Casey, uh, she writes, on the same day that you disparaged the achievement gap at OPRF High School and showed concern for River Forest residents. I don't think I showed concern for River Forest residents because I have none. The same day you disparaged the achievement gap at OPRF High School, Oak Park warmly welcomed at a moment's notice 102 desperate immigrants. Oh my God, 
We are a family with many OPRF graduates who has been blessed with a love of learning through preparations for college, graduate school, and the inspiration for a life of service, all from our quote-unquote exemplary teachers. The a breath of perspective, compassion for those who struggle, and the endorsement of a community that values everyone's worth far outweigh any ratings gap. 312 642 turnkey.pro, answer line, 646-36-DA, line. If anyone would like to echo the sentiments of Cynthia Mungerson, certainly willing to uh, take criticism. Wow. So their high school took in 20 migrants? No. Oak Park, Oak Park warmly oh. welcomed 102 desperate immigrants. We are a family with many OPRF graduates, mm. blessed with a love of learning. Ooh. A breath of perspective, compassion for those who struggle, and the endorsement of a community that values everyone's worth far outweigh any ratings gap. Don't look at the fact that 74% of honky students read at grade level at OPRF, but only 20% of black students do, even though we spend all our time prattling on about die and uh, and in, in doing our best to indoctrinate the kids with the in, in, uh, identitarian politics of the day. Pay no attention to the ratings gap. You're not looking at our compassion. You're well, not looking at how we value. Yeah, well, that'd be off the charts. Exactly. You're not looking at how we value every human being. 102, by the way, is nothing. That's child's play. If you really want to be inclusive... And giving and equality and equity and blah blah blah. Take more. Take ten thousands. Well, they're on yeah. their way here. Uh, we're on the same wavelength because here was my response to oh. Miss Cynthia Mungerson. Love your responses. We should get a jingle to this. Okay. Uh, Miss Mungerson, I'm both underwhelmed and amused. <laughs> the <laughs> stats disparage OPRF. The school is an affront to education. The hypocrisy of the 1960s refugees in Oak Park, that glorious nuclear free zone, and the ghastly harridans in River Force is thicker than molasses. You care so deeply about everything except results. Your self-congratulatory bilge about welcoming migrants is comical. In whose homes are they residing? 102? That's the best you can do? Where's the recruitment to give all the spiteful Mercedes Marxists in town who carry on with their no-one-is-illegal rap and display their hate-has-no-home-here signs the chance to live their values? I'm sure Chicago would be happy to transport folks, saying as BLM Brandon is now terming them a burden on the city. Make the call. Anyway, uh, you go on and feel your feelings, regardless of their barbaric consequences, and I'll continue to to tell the truth about what morally bankrupt totalitarian ghouls you and your fellow travelers are. Regards, Dan Proft. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. You can also reach us all morning line on our text line. It is up and running, folks. 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. See, nobody could uh, nobody could top that letter that you just wrote. Well, um, the but they, they could certainly try to help uh, Cynthia Mungerson in this little conversation we're having i haven't received a reply to my reply but i'm certainly hoping for one for the entertainment value if nothing else the um this is the mentality you're up against though i mean you want to understand why things the way they are are the way they are which everybody should seek to understand particularly when things are problematic this mentality that, that that sentence that i've read a couple of times now is the key don't look at the results just look at how deeply we feel about things. Right. We care. 
That's the that's the attitude of the left writ large. And that's the well-intentioned left. And that's a small percentage of the left in my assessment. How could you not realize that they're feeling miserable when you see such a huge achievement gap between white students and black students? She's they're not. She's not failing. Because she cares. Oh, that's right. Since if you care, yeah, you can't you fail the kids. Okay. All right. Now she, I'm starting to understand. She, she's a good person, mm-hmm. and her family are good people, mm-hmm. and uh, she's proud that they're OPRF graduates, and she's proud that Oak Park is welcoming 102 desperate immigrants, as she terms them, and that's what matters. Uh, what happens to the people coming to this country or attempting to come to this country, that is, you know, if they die, if they're being trafficked, if they're indebted to Mexican drug cartels, uh, if they aim to do America harm, none of that matters. Just like reading test scores, um, reading math proficiency and test scores, what does that matter? Don't you see how much I care why don't you care as much as I care? Because I value the worth of every human being in a way that you can't even understand because you're so focused on outcomes. That's the divide. It really is. It's a nice illustration. I appreciate the uh, correspondence from Miss Mungerson. Jeff in Antioch, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hi, good morning. Um, well, you know, when these, they graduate, these students can't read it grade level, et cetera, they say they eventually uh, land the job and, uh, you know, everything is their supervisors and managers, et cetera, they're, the only thing they care about are results and, you know, they, they <laughs> that's, that's what it is. So they're really setting them up to fail. If they don't fail and force them to take things over and, you know, kind of like put their nose to the grindstone and all that and get it right, well, you know what? They're just going to fail. Yeah, so, thanks uh, Thanks for the call, Jeff. I mean, we played uh, these, uh, you know, these videos that are making the rounds uh, on last, I think it was last Friday's program, actually, when Cass sat in for you, Amy. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, just uh, that they're, they're going viral, these many, many Gen Z videos where they're basically – mugged by rea- the reality and they're complaining about nine to five schedules and oh, they're complaining yeah. that they're working in a sushi restaurant when they have a business marketing degree. And so the, the mugging uh, by reality of that Jeff is talking about for cert- for certain George Naperville. Dan, this is the new, the new Oak Park Peace Corps. They're going to be doing good all over the world. In students. Well, I certainly I like be in that. favor of exporting Oak Park residents to other parts of the world. Thanks for the call, George. This is the morning show. More Chicago radio listeners are choosing. This is Chicago's morning answer on AM560. The answer. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local, family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. 
So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. Sports and politics and sports and politics and sports and politics and intersection. Arrogance and ignorance. Arrogance, ignorance, and arrogance and ignorance. Intersection. Uh, yeah, on this installment of sports and politics, first start with a sort of a fun one. Okay. Before we get to what I mentioned about the IHSA policy change with respect to boys playing girls sports. Oh, no. Uh, Robbie Starbuck uh, tweeting this. And a couple people have observed this, you know, Texas Rangers who just won the World Series the other night. Um, the only team that doesn't have some LGBTQ two spirit plus 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 night. Mm-hmm. Uh, the baseball season began with a preseason favorite to win the World Series, the Dodgers honoring drag queens that mock Jesus. And it ended with a range with the Rangers winning the World Series the day uh, their player reliever uh, Jose Leclerc celebrated Jesus with a quote unquote Jesus one shirt. He won indeed. Yeah. yeah. Just sort of fun. I mean, I'm not in. I don't believe, you know, Jesus picks sides in sporting events. You know, Jesus, please help us kick the snot out of our opponent. I don't right. think he's in that game. But um, it's just fun. I like it. So Good that's stuff. why I shared yes. it. All right. Hmm. All right. IHSA policy. Um, you're uh, I'm an, an IHSA, IHSA coach. Well, well, yeah. And I'm, I have a login. And, yes, I'm a member of IHSA. Uh-huh. So um, what my code? A, a, apparently this happened um, just uh, this fall, actually, after the fall sports season started, okay. which is the IHSA move to a boys can play girls sports on a case by case basis that will evaluate. Right. Well, what I was told, um, and I, I don't know if this has changed from just because everything's fluid, but last I was told is if you have a male who wants to play a female sport or a female that wants to play a male sport. You have to have a letter from their parents saying that they are transitioning, and um, and then some. I'm not sure if about the doctor's note, but I know that for sure the parents have to be in on. You can't just say, "Oh, I feel like my my name's Sally, so I want to go beat you know Lincoln Park, so I'm going to just suit up." Yeah, that sounds uh, all well and good, but it's not. That's not how it actually works in practice. I mean, this is from the IHSA manual. It's it's uh, third. Uh, uh, Section 34, Policy and, and School Recommendations for Transgender Participation. Okay. Uh, stu- schools shall notify all students who wish to participate in state uh, series athletic events or activities that any student who wishes to participate in gender-specific state series athletic events or activities under a gender identity, gender identity different from the sex assigned to the student at birth shall be required to obtain an eligibility ruling from the IHSA okay. prior to participation. So you have to get a ruling, but... When it comes to what you have to produce in order to get a favorable ruling, it gets a little gooier. Mm-hmm. Uh, students uh, are advised to contact the school's official representative to the IHSA on a confidential basis to notify them okay. that they, you know, a boy wants to play a girl's sport, you have to notify, you're advised to notify. Following receipt of the request for eligibility, the school shall submit a written request to the IHSA for an eligibility ruling. 
So, okay, so that's just formalizing the, the school's awareness. Um, the following information on the student, their parents and or uh, the school deem appropriate. So here, the opportunity, if you want to, the opportunity, if they're selected through the team tryout process and accompanied by such of the following information as the student, their parent, and or the school deem appropriate, they deem appropriate, not the HSA. Gender identity used for school registration records, documentation of consistent gender identity, medical documentation related to the student's gender identity, student statement affirming their gender identity, records of past participation in athletics or activities, such other information as student, the parent, or the school, if involved, deem relevant. Then the IHSA will make a final ruling on the student's participation, and they're, they're allegedly assessing whether the student sort of what you were saying is, you know, authentically and not seeking right. to uh, gain a competitive advantage by switching, you know, boys to girls sports. Well, you really need uh, a, to make a determination on that. You, whether you're seeking it or not, you're going to enjoy one when you transition from you're a boy and you take transition from boys to girls sports. Well, we played a team once, not, not at the high school level, at the middle school level where two boys were there. But they weren't transitioning. The, the coach was just doing this, you know, to, to just to be so woke. And look at me. I'm letting boys play in a girls team when we have a boys league, too. Well, here, this is the but this but is they the weren't point. transitioning. So that's point, why I was like, oh, God. Well, 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 well so says you. Um, so they may say something different. Their parents may say something different. The school may say something different. This is the point. The IHSA is not instituting any uh, threshold to really clear it's just putting policies and procedures in place so they can point to them while they're really abdicating their responsibility to make the determination. The determinations are being made by the interested parties. What kind of adjudication is that? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. So here's how it plays out. One concrete example. Okay. So, I mean, that's... What's going? That's the policy, and I just say case by case basis, and we're going to make sure that nobody is advantaged by. That's nonsense. It's not possible. That's just one lie covering another lie. It is not possible to prevent a boy running cross country with the girls, for example. A story I'm about to tell you. It's not possible to prevent him from being advantaged because he's better. I mean, he runs faster. He has more endurance. He has greater lung capacity. It's physiological. So in addition to perpetuating the lie that boys can be girls and vice versa, now we're going to have to perpetuate the lie that there's some uh, unicornia scenario where uh, boys are not going to be advantaged if they uh, come over to the girls' side. So here it is. Cross country, which, uh, by the way, my, my nephew big cross-country runner at Marmion, um, they won the section. They won their sectionals. Oh, that's huge, Dave. They had four, I think four of their uh, kids, uh, boys, were in the top 25. So, so they're anyway. going to state this weekend, aren't they, then? They're going to state. Yeah, good for them. Good for him. Are you going to go cheer him on? No. Okay. Um, <laughs> the end. Yeah. I'm just going to live vicariously through his athletic success through. since I was, you know, a mediocre failed athlete, so... It's that's right. that's why you I'm were only interest. five foot nine your freshman year. I was know? five two. I'm my sorry, freshman five year. two. Excuse me, five two. I was five two, like a hundred five pounds. I was yeah, a little nugget. 
You were yeah. 105 pounds. Mm-hmm. I could pick you up. Yeah. Because I was yeah. 5'11". Yeah. And Amy Jacobson yeah. wouldn't have given me the time of day, no. though. Get away, you peasant. part of the cool kids. You plebeian yeah. ankle uh, biter. <laughs> all right, anyway. Okay. Let's back get back to, to the story here. Cross country. Because um, it was right. boys and girls cross country this, well, this fall. Well, yes, but so here's what I information I got from a longtime track and field coach at the okay. high school level. Um, last year, uh, an athlete, a uh, boy, competed on his high school's cross country and track team. This fall, he competed as a girl in the girls' cross country season under the new IHSA guidelines. Okay. At the sectional this past Saturday, the eleventh individual finisher was a female athlete who was displaced by the transgender athlete, mm. the boy running as a girl. So now that uh, girl cross-country runner is not going to state when if the boy wasn't running as a girl, she would be going to state. Mm. So uh, how, you know, I mean, especially, you know, parent, right, parents of athletes, or if you were a better athlete than me uh, yourself and you had the chance to go down to state, I remember this golf and basketball. How important was going to state? How how I'm like so cru- that is soul crushing. I feel sick for her because when you run cross country, you put in so many miles and you dedicate not weeks but months of your lives to the sport. Oh, that's awful. So this happened. Um, I'm not going to get into names. Because it's it's not even it's not you know I'm uh, there's no desire to demonize the boy who's running as a girl. No, uh, we don't know what school they go to. I don't know. I do know what school he's going to. It's Westmont. It's Westmont High School. I'll tell you the school, but I'm not going to tell you his name. I'm not going to get into that because it's not about that. I mean, if you make a spectacle of yourself like uh, Caitlyn Jenner or Leah Thomas, then we're going to talk about you. But I'm not looking to dox anybody, quote unquote, and we're really not doxing. We're not looking to demonize anybody. We're looking to say this doesn't make sense. And it's the adults in charge of the system that are failing the kids, um, yeah, including this kid's parents, frankly. But I digress. All right. So this is Westmont High School. That's where this kid runs. Mm-hmm. Uh, it happened at the Westmont Regional, then again at the Kankakee Sectional. Um, listen to the. I mean, again, the whole uh, we're going to make sure that there's no advantage. Uh, This uh, boy running as a girl in the regional uh, third place, 19 minutes and 52 seconds. I guess that's three miles or something. Uh, That time would have been 24th in the boys race. In the sectionals, he placed fourth running as a girl, 18 minutes and 39 seconds. That team would have that time would have been 55th in the boys race. So third, it would have been 24th if he's running as a boy, which he is. Uh, fourth in the sectionals, it would have been 50-50 if he was running as a boy. And instead, he's taking the place of a girl going downstate. Um, by the way, the girl's parents, who was finished 11th in the sectionals and was denied going downstate, yeah. they petitioned the IHSA to allow their daughter to compete at state because... She finished in the top 10 of girls. Denied. Um, the um, the opinion of this track and field coach who communicated with me, who's been a track and field coach for a long time in Illinois, uh-huh. the bottom line is that the IHSA no longer supports girls' sports. 
312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. What do you think about that, Coach? I'm just still processing. I feel sick to my stomach. I didn't know that the parents went in and, you know, tried to file an injunction to get it reversed. I don't know if they went into I don't think they went to court. I think they appealed to the IHSA in the interest of fairness and propriety. Shouldn't you let our daughter compete? Should she finish 10th and the top? She was the 10th finishing girl and the top 10 girls go to state. Yes. Um, I mean, it's this weekend. I mean, what's it's tomorrow? Yeah, it's tomorrow. So I don't know if there's anything if they can get a lawyer and try and reverse this before the unthinkable happens. But it makes me sick to my stomach. It's the beginning of the end of girls' sports. Joe in Naperville. Yeah, two quick things. You know, two quick things. I hope that parents, that parent of that girl, gets a lawyer and sues civilly every single person who had a hand in that. That is ridiculous. And I think in protest, every single female athlete should wear a shirt that says, I'm a female athlete because I have a vagina. Every single female athlete should wear a shirt like that. Thanks for the call, uh, Joe. Appreciate Max it. Max Preps, they don't have their roster up. So I'll tell you what, if I mean, you know, it's, a, it's complicated because you don't want to deny a girls the opportunity to compete at state that they earn. But it would be. Nice. We've talked about this before in the context of Leah Thomas and other such examples. They're now innumerable. But it would be nice if the girls just withdrew from the competition. Said, so, look, if you're uh, I mean, if, if you're going to rig our sport against us uh, and you're going to hurt some of our colleagues and fellow competitors, then we're just not going to participate. Yeah, it boycott seems to, would be nice, but I don't it, think that's going to happen. No, I mean, it doesn't seem like there's much impetus for it at present. But at some point, maybe there'll be critical mass when enough people have been harmed, like this uh, girl who's on the outside looking in at state. Maybe enough people will be harmed and some people will step up and say, well, it's obvious that the adults around here aren't going to do anything sensible. So it's up to us young people. It's up to us high schoolers or college athletes to take on the leadership here, like Riley Gaines is uh, – post her swimming career at Kentucky. I don't know. I don't know. Jim in the Grange. Hey, Dan. Hey, Amy. Good morning. So I don't advocate for biological males playing in female sports, but if they're going to do it, why don't they throw a handicap, I mean time-wise, on the uh, biological males in that sport, like, you know, kind of like a golf handicap, Dan. And uh, all of a sudden, I bet you you that – there's not going to be a lot of people clamoring to go to the other side and try to win a, a girl's race when you're a dude. Thanks for the call, Jim. But, you know, that uh, it's an interesting thought. Um, I still don't like uh, uh, being party to a lie. But um, but the problem with that is, is what? The problem with that is you're dealing with ideologues. Remember, they're starting from the premise that it's unclear – that men have any advantage over women in sports. And in point of fact, some of these uh, trans advocates say there is no proof that men have an advantage, a physical mm-hmm. advantage over women in sports. They, yeah. I mean, they say it. It's obviously well, not true, but it. they say it. I mean, come on. But I mean, but, the, but this is what you're up against. You, if, you, if you made I'm a proposal like that, if you made a proposal like that, like Jim made, that's what you would get in response. 
Well, I want to know how far. I mean, this this family, the tic-tac goes the clock. They better, if they're going to file anything, they should have their lawyer in a courtroom today because did, did he present a, a, a medical letter saying he's transitioning? I mean, what I, I'm under the understanding that you can't just say, I feel like a guy or feel like a girl, so I'm going to start running with the girls' team now. The, you, I, just, I just read you the I know, guidelines. I know you just read me the guidelines, but and, I, and, I might press that. And then what's clear from the guidelines is if the parents and the school conspire to promote this a boy running for the girls' cross-country team, then, then that's what the IHSA okay. is going to do. Right. They're going to allow it. That's what's happening. That's the reality. This, this uh, guidelines... Uh, the guidelines that the IHSA promulgated just to cover their ass. They're pathetic. Cynthia Palos Park. Hi. Good morning, guys. Yeah, this really uh, makes me angry, especially for these young female runners. I'm a a 66-year-old woman, and I still race competitively. But I know that I, I can't beat anybody younger than me, and I can't beat anybody that is a male. In my age category against other females, I can usually win a place. And that really is exciting for an old gal like me. Yeah. So what a shame. What an absolute shame. Thank well, thank, you. I got a for the text call, message. <clears throat> Dan and Amy, all the girls should withdraw and have their own competition among themselves. Mm, well, that's not going to happen because they've worked just as hard to get to go to state, to get scholarships <laughs> for for college, <clears throat> and it's something that they'll talk about for the rest of their lives. Like, yeah, I, I was I qualified for state. Yeah, at some point, though, maybe if there was a little bit more adult leadership, um, well, we could play get get them together and play clips of the uh, person who stops uh, running in the middle of a race to help somebody who fell down oh, yeah. and hurt themselves because they're more concerned about whether the person is hurt than they are about winning the race. At some point. Um, you're going to see somebody do something like that because there's enough good people out there that uh, recognize the sort of more transcend- uh, transcendental importance of sports um, beyond uh, ribbons and college scholarships. By the way, if the uh, nine, I assume it's only nine. Uh, I, I assume it's 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 nine women and one dude in this cross country okay. state. Yes. But but maybe there are more. I don't know. But if the if the girls got together and did their own thing, what that texter suggested. Um, that would be international news, number one. Their times are their times. I don't think that's going to imperil any college scholarships for schools that are looking at, uh, at looking at them for track and field events or cross-country team. Um, so it's, it's – but I, I, I understand. I understand why you don't want to do it. I understand that this is, uh, you know, a, a young person's dream to c- – competitive athlete to be at, at compete at that level at state because very few kids get to do it. Uh-huh. But um, at some point, somebody is going to break the seal on this and do something along the lines that I suggest. And um, well, I'll look forward to that day. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. The more you listen, the more, you listen. The more you'll know. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. 
These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender, Signature Bank. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Well, 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 when it comes to BLM Brandon and his forthcoming Give Me That base camps around the the, uh, city, what he was uh, saying yesterday about, uh, or the other day, about uh, uh, the city of Chicago is like that that cable show. The HGTV. Property Brothers, you know, you got to... You, you occupy something and you find out all that's wrong with it. So we got to do these environmental assessments on that site at 38th and California before we uh, move forward with completion of the project and, and build that base camp to house a, up to a couple hundred, a couple thousand migrants. Well, that turns out to not be true. Yeah. Mayor Johnson lied, everybody. This just in. So four hours before Wednesday's press conference, four hours before. They, the city signed an, a deal to rent that piece of land for $91,000 a month. No, no, no. Not not four hours before. The deal to lease With, the land was signed on October 26th, according to a copy of the lease agreement. Well, according to NBC5 Investigates, they said it was four hours before that he was notified of it. But whatever, he lied. Here's the lie. Just listen to the big lie. And what's the latest on the 38th and California site? Just say it. Still assessing. So assessing. I think this was raised before. Well, we there are, there are a lot of environmental dynamics in the city of Chicago that have gone unaddressed for a very long time. You know, sometimes my wife asks me, she's like, what is it like being mayor? Oh my God. I said, it's like an HGTV special. You ever watch different shows like Property Brothers? You watch Property Brothers, and you know how you acquire a particular property, and then it looks like this is great potential, and then you knock down a wall, and then you notice and you discover that there are dynamics that have been unaddressed. That's what Chicago is like right now, that we have this incredible edifice, but so many of our neighborhoods have been neglected that there are environmental concerns. And so I have that, to do my due diligence to it's make It's a lie. Why, why not just say it's a signed deal? The contract's done. Uh, maybe he's being kept in the dark the same way that Alderman Julia Ramirez is saying she's been kept in the dark. She doesn't know about the plan. She doesn't know about the lease. She doesn't know about anything. He's maybe she should start asking uh, around the fifth floor about what's going on here. And maybe BLM Brandon should as well. He uh, you know, we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. He doesn't know what's happening underneath him. This is staff, I guess, uh, freelancing because you you have to, of course, take BLM Brandon at his word that he's very concerned about the uh, any potential environmental questions. I love this one Brighton Park resident. He just said it like it was. Once the Brighton Park residents found out, oh, it's already, you know, the 
the ink is already dried on the paper. If there is one thing that uh, residents and alders and asylum seekers all have in common right now, it's that uh, nobody knows what's going on, and it's because the city won't tell us what's happening. Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey depro answer line. Actually, you do know what's going on, and everybody knew what was going on when they showed up to that uh, community meeting at Kelly High School the other day. They know what's going on. You see the construction. You don't know what's going on. What, oh, you're taking the city's assurances that we're still evaluating and environmental this and assessment that. You know what's going on if you've lived in the city of Chicago for five minutes. The deal is done. The uh, solicitation of input from the residents is performative. And we're all moving on. So get on the bus or get under it. That's what's going on. Of course, that's what's going on. By the way, this um, $91,000 a month lease on this property at uh, 38th in California, uh, Barn Acres Corporation is the land owner. Um, Whose cousin is that? (laughs) Well, you know, we had this call last week that suggested that Barn Acres might be owned by Michael Taden and Al Sanchez. I I, I can't confirm that yet, but sort of looking into that... uh, the, uh, they have a Markham address for their corporate headquarters where they um, uh, house industrial companies, including Sanchez Paving. Hmm. Um, yeah, so, you know, uh, obviously in Chicago, too, anybody who's been here for five minutes, uh, you want to ask those questions. Uh, the, the policies uh, can only be properly understood if you have information on who's getting paid. That's what drives public policy making in Chicago, even under these ideological Marxists. You still got to sprinkle the infield and you still have all the rent seekers and all the relationships at City Hall that know how to position themselves regardless of administration. So um, everybody is on notice that either BLM Brandon is uh, just straight up lying to you or, or he's left in the dark. You're right. He's not uh, the the uh, shot caller when it comes to this stuff, and staff, and what other who any other shadowy figures that may be lurking around the administration are driving this thing forward. So if you're at a in Morgan Park and you think 115th and uh, Halstead isn't going to happen, mm, probably and and the broadcast and, museum, it's happening, folks, and the rest of the city. Remember, uh, they're they're focused on equity. So uh, the longer this goes, uh, the more likely it is this comes to a neighborhood near you if it hasn't already. Well, 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636-DA, turnkey.pro tech Well, line. two aldermen are trying to stop it. They want to put it on the ballot to let us Chicagoans decide if we want to continue being a sanctuary city. But they had a really hard time getting people to attend the special council yesterday. And then they never even had enough. They never even took a vote because they turned the lights out. They didn't turn the lights off on us. They didn't turn the lights on us like it's a club. Did they turn the lights on us? They turned the lights out. Oh, my God. Is this real? This is a real circus. This is how we This is crazy. Dan, I watched it so you didn't have to. It was just chaos for hours. Please. And people just. Please. I mean, just spare me the hand-wringing from any of these alder humans.
Yeah. Oh, Tony Beal and Ray Lopez are going back and forth with socialist Ramirez Rosa, and it takes forever to get a quorum, and then they abdicate, and Ramirez Rosa says it's over, and Beal says, no, we're adjourned till Tuesday, and so on and so forth. Give me a break. Well, some aldermen had to leave because, you know, they had things to do. And this is great. No, no, no. No, no, this, this no. Is, yeah. no they didn't have things to do. No, they didn't. But they made up that they had things to do, Dan. There's potholes out there. Well, I'm leaving because right now I have potholes, trees get trimmed, and I have a host of other things that our uh, residents in the Sixth Ward want me to deal with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're, Alderman Hall. Mm-hmm. Right. He is uh, Alderman. Alder Human Hall is going to fill those potholes yeah. and trim those trees, right? I mean, I you know. This is uh, an electorate that these politicians know very well. So when you see how they behave and you're surprised or you're feigning surprise, just remember the baseline. They know very well who their constituents are. Think about that when you watch their conduct. Oh, by the way, they even showed up. A related story. Yeah. Um. The um, uh, this is good news. I mean, in the interest of equity, which I know is important to that electorate I was just describing. Um, the uh, migrants again. Not all migrants are criminals, and some here in good faith. Uh, maybe there's some. Uh, Honest to good asylum seekers that have a, a legitimate claim under our asylum laws. Mm-hmm. So it's a mixed bag, as I've always said. So, you know, for those who can't deal on the merits of this issue and just want to run around saying xenophobe because they're infants, that's fine. Um, but it is nice to see that there is equity being applied here. And I'm sure uh, all the leftists in the city would agree uh, that the migrants are being treated exactly like criminals in Chicago, like this Venezuelan migrant who's been arrested four times since May, and prosecutors have dropped the case every single time. Uh, yeah, real 19 nice year, guy. 19-year-old, yeah. first pass with uh, police officers May 17th in the loop. Norperson Rack employee told the um, individual, uh, told police the individual tried to walk out with a jumpsuit and a jacket worth 138 bucks. Uh, he was released on his own recognizance, and then prosecutors dropped the case. A few weeks later, he's arrested again across the street from the Standard Club migrant shelter. Well, he got there. into a fight inside uh, Pritzker Park. How ironic. That could reasonably call bo- cause bodily injury to or endanger the safety of another. He was released on his own recognizance, and uh, that charge was that case was dropped. He got arrested again while that case was pending at Ulta Beauty on North Michigan, accused of trying to shoplift merchandise worth 115 bucks. He was released from the station on his own recognizance, and, you know, and then, then the case was dropped. Uh, six days later, uh, cops saw the same guy pop open the handicapped access gate at Jackson Redline Station and head to the platform without paying fare. Mm-hmm. They arrested him. He appeared before the judge um, who, um, uh, to consider whether his pretrial release should be revoked because he allegedly committed a new offense while the reckless conduct case was still pending. But no, no. Uh, prosecutors dropped the reckless conduct case and the CTA fair, fair infraction to dispense with all this ugliness altogether. So, again, Cook County justice system is equal injustice before the law on behalf of criminals, whether they're here legally or not, and 
against the law abiding. I just wanted to make sure everybody knew that Kim Fox wasn't playing favorites. And there's another Venezuelan who's at Oak Brook Mall stealing thousands of dollars worth of stuff. How did he get out there in a car? How did he get that car? Hmm. Stephen Roselle. Yeah, good morning, Dan and Amy. This uh, $91,000 a month is more than a million dollars a year. So which is worse, the mayor lying or the mayor not knowing about million-dollar contracts? Well, well a bit of both. <laughs> yeah, thanks for the call. And I, I, I'm I, trying to get a handle on the uh, market value of that property, too, to see, to it's try to assess land. whether that lease is market rate. Um, it is a big property. It's but, acres of land. I mean, it's huge. So, yeah. I don't know. We'll see. Well, mm-hmm. that's why we're looking into it. Peggy in Chicago. Oh, Peggy. Yeah, I just want you to know that, you know, before we had Ellis Island where these people would be, you know, uh, bedded, and uh, now they're coming into the general population and they're bringing in all kinds of little creepy, crawly bugs that we've never seen before. And once you do that, I mean, you're going to start going on the buses and they will. you will soon be seeing stuff in your body. And, yeah, well, uh, another reason nice. an, another nice. reason not to take uh, government transportation, as if I needed another one. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. It's like a hot, steaming cup of information to start your day. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Dan and Amy, uh, big fan of Remy over at... Uh, Reason Magazine, you know, he does these yeah. parody music videos. We had him on the show, remember? Yeah, we've had him on. Yeah. And uh, he's, he's sort, of, new. sort of a political Weird Al Yankovic. Uh, he does, and I'm not familiar with uh, Taylor Swift's oeuvre, but this is uh, uh, a parody of a Taylor Swift song. And it really, I think, speaks to uh, Chicago, and I'm sure it will speak to the residents of Chicago, uh-huh. when we talk about... Uh, what, uh, crime that is endemic or imported and who the responsible party really is because we know it's not the person who commits crimes. I was on a walk so brisk just minding my business out with my walking stick can't you see Innocently, but I'm just human. Oh, it's true. Yes, I am just a man. What else could one do seeing luggage in a minivan? I have no choice in the matter. Do you not understand? I check it once, then I check it twice. Ah, ooh, look what you made me do. Look what you made me do. Look what you just made me do. Look what you just made me do. Look what you made me do. Look what you made me do. Look what you just made me do. Look what you just made me do. They don't want to steal whiskey, but they must feed their family. My newborn loves Pappy. He's a boy and he likes blue. How do you expect someone not to shatter all this glass when he sees this while only carrying the 14 max? Any chance you might step up to defend property rights? I check it once, then I check it twice. Hmm. Ooh, look what I always do. Look what I always do. Just look at what I like to look at what I like to do. Yeah, we're in look trouble. What I always do. Look what I always do. Just look at what I like to look at what I like to do. Yeah, I'm looking to move. 
And then at the end, somebody steals his cell phone while he's on the call. Just you got to see the video to fully yeah. appreciate it. But you get the gist of it. Look what what we're making these people do. Yes, a guy Wonderful. smashing, you know, stealing stuff, luggage out of people's cars. It's awesome. <sighs> yeah, stuff steal. from stores, whiskey from liquor stores. It goes. Yeah, I got to steal the whiskey to feed your family. You know, the baby likes Pappy Van Winkle. <laughs> Wonderful. This is the morning show. More Chicago radio listeners are choosing. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, The West can't say it hasn't been warned over and over and over again about uh, the cultural revolutionaries in our midst. Uh, James Lindsay, who's a author and commentator on culture, he was part of a uh, panel discussion about these cultural revolutionaries of the left, the new Marxists. Uh, he part of a, a panel discussion before the European Parliament a couple months back. We went over his testimony back then, but let's refresh our recollections in advance of our next guest. James Lindsay describing what uh, we call wokeism, so many people call wokeism, what it actually is. So here's the definition of equity and see if it sounds like a definition of anything else you've ever heard of. The definition of equity comes from the public administration literature. It was written by a man named George Fredrickson. And the definition is an administered political economy in which shares are adjusted so that citizens are made equal. Does that sound like anything you've heard of before, like socialism? They're going to administer an economy to make shares equal. The only difference between equity and socialism is the type of property that they redistribute, the type of shares. They're going to redistribute social and cultural capital in addition to economic and material capital. And so this is my thesis when we say, what is woke? Woke is Maoism with American characteristics, if I might borrow from Mao himself, who said that his philosophy was Marxism-Leninism with Chinese characteristics, which means woke is Marxism. And it's a very provocative statement. Maoism with American characteristics. Uh, Yeah, that is about right. I mean, Maoism, the difference between Maoism and Marxism is basically just the the focus uh, mao was more focused on the agrarian and marx on the urban um social and cultural property but also also uh actual right if you're in the business of equalizing so on that cultural private property here comes identitarianism wrote a long article for the Harvard Law Review called Whiteness as Property. She explained that whiteness or white privilege constitutes a kind of cultural private property. She says it must be abolished in order to have racial justice, just like Karl Marx said that in the Communist Manifesto he wrote, communism can be summarized in a single sentence, the abolition of private property. Well, this is why critical race theory calls to abolish whiteness. Because whiteness is a form of private property. For, I mean, he was talking about Cheryl Harris, by the way, with that Harvard uh, 
uh, the, the, the piece by the Harvard scholar. Scholar, I use that term loosely. Uh, for more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Xi Van Fleet, Chinese by birth, American by choice, survivor of Mao's Cultural Revolution when she was just a teenager, and a defender of liberty. Her new book, right along the lines of what James Lindsay was saying, Mao's America, A Survivor's Warning. Xi Van Fleet, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Well, I uh, I uh, said before the break, um, Xi Van Fleet survived Mao's Cultural Revolution. How much longer can she survive living in Northern Virginia? Um, what's the answer to that question? Yes, that's why I'm fighting, because I do not want to live under communism again. And so that's exactly my warning is. We are in the midst of a revolution, and the goal is to overthrow our system, to replace it by Marxist and a communist ideology. And also, by the way, uh, Dr. James Lindsay wrote the foreword for my book. Oh, perfect. There you go. Well, so, yeah. so, so speak to what you experienced as a teenager in China and what you're seeing in America today, the parallels that you see. Okay, get ready. All this okay. that I experienced <laughs> is now familiar to everyone in America. Identity politics. Okay, so the entire Chinese population was divided into two groups. The uh, um, by then it's not called oppressor, but it's based on the same ideology. The uh, those who deemed as enemies of the uh, state and those who are the allies of the state. So who were the enemies? The uh, the government Mao decide. Anyone he doesn't he did not like. Anyone that. Uh, uh, the people think Mao did not like all grouped together as the enemy, and they are called the black class. And the rest were uh, the red class. So the whole Cultural Revolution was the, uh, um, was really the struggle between the black class and, and uh, uh, a red class. And the black class were the enemies. They were the ones being persecuted by the red guards. Millions of them get killed in the process. Other is cancel culture. Everything that's traditional, everything that's old, has to be destroyed, to be uh, replaced by Maoism, the most pure Marxism, that's what we were told. And um, chaos. You've got to have chaos if you want to have a revolution. That's why Mao re uh, uh, released all the red cards, 10 million strong, to go to the city um, and destroy everything, toppling down the uh, statues, changing institutional names, uh, looted people's homes in search of anything old, and in the process, kill so many of the people, started with their teachers wow. and their principals. And weren't you physically forced to the countryside with other young Chinese for re-education? Yes. And okay, the, the story goes on. Okay, so the, uh, the Red Guards did what Mao wanted them to do. But then they, 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 they really create a monster that they, they can no longer control. They start to fight each other and started to really uh, a civil war in China. And uh, so what they, Mao did, Mao used military and suppressed them and sent the rest to the countryside to be re-educated by the peasants. And I was, after I graduated from high school, 
same thing. No jobs. Everything was uh, in ruins. What to do with the young people? Send them all to the countryside. And so I was pretty much the last group that was sent to the countryside. And I worked uh, in the countryside in a primitive condition. Don't think about the countryside in America as so beautiful nature. No, it is like Stone Age primitive. And I worked there for three years before, uh, until Mao died and I was able to go to college. That's my experience of the Cultural Revolution. So, so let, let me just uh, uh, process the progression and get your comment on it. So it's uh, separation, right, uh, the red and the black. Then the red attacks the black to create chaos and instill fear. Mm-hmm. Then the despot comes in to reestablish stability. And then people are killed or sent away, and you've achieved full subjugation of your populace. Is that about the process? Pretty much. And in, in, in the process, our civilization was destroyed. Well, yeah. Institutions destroyed. Order destroyed. And, um, yeah, it's basically total chaos. Mao thought that's the problem. Mao thought he could just release the chaos and then he would control it and then uh, build a new order. It's never what you really uh, going to happen as you planned, right? It's out of control, just like here. The uh, the uh, um, the progressives thought now they have an army of uh, the woke the woke army. But look at now, look at right now. They create such a monster; it, they they no longer can control it. You know, the the, um, the uh, Biden administration condemned Hamas. They had to, yeah. And then the main media, mainstream media, kind of condemned, but not not those. Uh, um, protest on the streets. They support terrorism. They support killing, raping, and the kidnapping, and, and no one can control them. And that's only the first step. The next step is they are going to commit violence just like the Red Cross. Do you think we're heading to World War III? Uh, uh, looks like so. I don't know. But at least uh, in the, uh, uh, inside America, we can see that the Red Guards, American Red Guards, has taken a very, very important step that they celebrate violence, that they started to uh, attack Jewish students on campuses. That is absolutely a very, very important step. And uh, where it leads to, just check out the Cultural Revolution and the story of the Red Guards, which I explained in my book. So the educated classes... The educated classes, the elites in uh, Mao's China, what was their posture as this chaos was being instigated? Was it uh, what we see in America where you have some that uh, are ideologically aligned, so they are proponents, essentially, or at least apologists? Was it uh, some who were fearful and so didn't speak up? Was it a combination of the two? What was the dynamic? I think it's a- yeah, I think it's uh, it's both, but um, the Chinese Cultural Revolution is really a huge revolution. Mao mobilized tens of millions of young people to carry out his revolution, and those are the educated ones. They're, they're, they're college, they're in college, high school, or or as young as middle school. And this weaponization of youth is because they were from 
the government schools they have been so thoroughly brainwashed and they will follow mouth water no matter what, even if it means kill your own parents and many of them did that. And that is the same kind of uh, toxic ideology driven the, uh, the young people that we see on the streets and on campuses. And uh, so they don't have the thought of their own. They just follow the ideology by determining who is the oppressor, who is the oppressed. Uh, and, and then by the oppressor, it's not a thinking. In, uh, no thinking is involved. And then so no matter what, if this is the oppressor, anything down to them, it's justified. So that uh, dynamic uh, during the Cultural Revolution was similar. It was the oppressors and the oppressed, and we must throw off the chains of the oppressors as so defined by Mao. The party. The yeah, Mao. the party. Yeah, and, and, so, and so for those in America today who are skeptical that it could go as far off the rails as something like the Cultural Revolution, what do you say to them? Did you see that same sort of skepticism uh, in China during Mao in the early days where people said, well, you know, I, I disagree with him. I don't support that. But I mean, it's not like we're not going to start killing each other. He's not, you know, people are, are overreacting to Mao, sort of the same dismissive rhetoric you get from many on the left today. Well, not quite, because by then China has been ruled by Mao for 17 years and you have only one choice. If your choice is disagree, you know where you'll end up, in jail or in graves. So everybody just kind of follow along. So during the Cultural Revolution, it's not like you're against the party. It's like the party thinks you're against the party. And it's uh, people think you're against the party. No, right. You see I, what but, I mean? It's, no, no, I understand. I'm, I'm, but, but I'm talking about in, a, in the early, so it, well in advance of the, the uh, precipice of the Cultural Revolution. Um, when uh, he was uh, brandishing his uh, little red book around town in the early days when he came to power, was there sort of a, um, you know, was there uh, any concern that uh, these were the, the Cultural Revolution as it proceeded were actually his intentions or were people dismissive about others who suggested this guy is taking us down a very dangerous road? I really have to say, at that time, you don't think. You just follow. And you try to make sure you follow very closely, whatever that order is from the party, from Mao. Because doing otherwise, just to, just to show you have no enthusiasm, you are considered uh, resistant. Uh, that's because I've been uh, um, under the uh, communist rule for 17 years. And right now, we are in the earliest stage of uh, conformity that everyone uh, now feel like a, um, woke. You can't disagree with it. If you disagree with the uh, radical transgender ideology, you are transphobia. And if you disagree with BMM, you are racist. And now if you disagree with uh, the, uh, um, the pro-Hamas uh, movement, then you are a colonialist or right. you you know so it's you are forced a lot of people disagree but that they're not to say anything and so we are progressing in the same direction as the cultural revolution eventually everyone would if we don't stop it everyone would just obey and conform and uh, then evil will run and rule the world because you no longer there to 
say anything different. What's the situation in Loudoun County? Now, you came to some prominence nationally by speaking up at uh, school board meetings at Loudoun County when so many other parents were as well about what was happening there with the curriculum and not to mention violence. Um, uh, and and I wonder, you know, and, and, and the revolt that happened in Loudoun and Fairfax counties put Glenn Youngkin in the governorship uh, in Virginia. So we know that story. But I wonder if that was just a moment just with that superintendent and that school board on those issues, or there's a newfound recognition about what is afoot, as you're describing it, in a well-heeled, educated place like Loudoun and Fairfax. It was just a moment, or is there real, uh, a real different uh, thinking about what's happening that has taken hold there? Yeah, this is a movement, but it takes a lot of... Uh, a commitment and uh, and uh, um, uh, really do, uh, com- uh, committed and devoted people to keep the movement going, and uh, that's the not easy. It's not easy. The conservatives are just not like the uh, radical uh, liberals because lib- liberals are really right now the uh, they are communists. They never sleep. So as conservatives. We can't sleep either. So we have been working. Right now, we have an election coming, and all the school board members are up for a re-election. We're working so hard to uh, try to get a uh, uh, conservative uh, board member in. And so uh, it's early uh, voting stage, the 7th, we're going to have the uh, election day. So we have to really work hard on that. But I have something really good to report to, uh, to you um, on November 1st. There are uh, student walkout in Loudoun High School and in another county next uh, uh, nearby, that's Prince William, uh, Prince William County. The students walk out in protest against the uh, uh, transgender policies and they demand separate locker room for males and females. And I just, I feel just so happy to see that kind of progress. That is encouraging. She is Shi Van Flee, Chinese by birth, American by choice, survivor of Mao's Cultural Revolution and Defender of Liberty. Her new book, Pick It Up, Mao's America, A Survivor's Warning. Shi Van Flee, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And she joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Listen to podcast of Dan and Amy from the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Boy, the left is really trying to be all things to all people when it comes to this conflict between the Israelis and Hamas. Really trying to be all things to all people. Uh, from Mr. Ten Percent, the big guy, President Biden's uh, national address the other week, where he was unequivocal in America standing with Israel, to now he calling for a pause. Mm-hmm. Our very own senior senator calling for a ceasefire. Is a ceasefire needed now? I think it is, at least uh, under uh, in the context of both sides agreeing. For example, the release of those who have been kidnapped should be part of this, immediate release. Uh, That should be the beginning of it. 
uh, an effort should be made to engage in conversation between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Let's face it, this has gone on for decades. Uh, whatever the rationale from the beginning, it has now reached an intolerable level. Uh, we need to have a resolution in the Middle East that gives some promise for the future. Have you told the president, uh -huh, the White House? Uh -huh. So yeah. ceasefire, the, the, the mealy-mouth ceasefire rhetoric. Uh, John Kirby, NSC spokeshuman on aid to Gaza as uh, a uh, requirement for support from the White House to any sort of aid package that would include Israel, Ukraine, Taiwan. Take a listen. The, the way the House Republicans have carved this out is no humanitarian assistance. It only goes to security assistance for Israel. And that's got to be a non-starter. I mean, that's nothing, that's nothing more than partisan politics right there. I mean, Evans. here we are. I've been taking I don't know how many questions about civilian casualties and the desperation of the people in Gaza. I mean, it's incorrigible that anybody would think that we wouldn't need some additional funding to help get food, water, and medicine to these people. They didn't cause this. They didn't ask for that. Hamas doesn't represent them. They're victims, too, and they need that support. Well, I mean— Hamas literally does represent them since they're the governing right. body in Gaza. Literally, they, they voted represent them, them in 2007, I believe. Yes. I mean, so I'm all for humanitarian aid to um, uh, innocents caught in the crossfire. But I mean, how much have we provided uh, in aid to Gaza over the last, I don't know, decade alone? And how are we assuring that the uh, humanitarian aid would get to Palestinian people and not just be commandeered by Hamas. And don't we have uh, UN trucks ramping up their delivery of this aid? And don't we provide a great deal of funding to the UN generally and specific aid agencies like the World Programs uh, uh, beyond that? And do you really understand? You're the national security spokesman. Do you understand what Israel's doing? Because Mike McCall seems to, amid all of the propagandizing about bombing a, a refugee camp, Mike McCall understands what Israel is doing because he's watching. He's the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Republican from Texas, and here's what he sees. I think what's important to know, and I've talked to Cindy McCain, the World Food Program, they're very good in combat situations, getting aid in. The trucks now have gone from like 14 to now 100 per day of giving, you know, bringing medicine and food. Uh, in, but if you look at uh, the battlefield right now in central Gaza, you can see what uh, the IDF, the Israeli uh, troops, are starting to do. They they want to blockade uh, northern Gaza from southern Gaza, and then create a humanitarian zone, if you will, in southern Gaza, where I think this relief can be more readily deployed, and to get uh, people out of there as well, particularly the dual uh, citizens that are both uh, have American citizenship um, and uh, and Palestinian. Um, it would be great if Egypt would take some of them or UAE or Saudi, but they won't, unfortunately. And, and so we're, we're kind of dealt with the cards we have. Uh, but I think that's a strategy is to isolate southern Gaza and turn it into a humanitarian zone away from Hamas in the north. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Brett Baer, host of Fox News Special Report, weekdays 5 p.m., best-selling author of the just-released To Rescue the Constitution, George Washington and the Fragile American Experiment. Brett, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Good morning. So um, 
Do you see uh, the administration, the Biden administration, sort of watering down their position from where it was a week or 10 days ago, or am I being unfair? No, I think that that's what you're seeing. I think that um, the Israelis see that. I had Mark Regev on the show uh, last night, and basically he thought, listen, we, we are not going to pause. Uh, this is going to push through. We're going to go after, you know, these and they called them monsters who um, who pulled off these October seventh attacks, and you know they are trying desperately to to miss and uh, reduce civilian casualties. They know that that's a big part of this, and they're trying to figure out ways to get at these Hamas leadership targets uh, without taking out civilians. The problem is Hamas uses civilians as human shields, and um, that is their mo. They're holding people in these places, uh, and, you know, it's interesting to see how the administration kind of has changed uh, from the beginning, which was one way, then to moral clarity and standing with the Israelis, then to, you know, kind of calling for this this pause. No one was calling for the America to pause after we were going after al-Qaeda terrorists around the world uh, after 9-11. Nobody was saying, you need to dial it back. Uh, when we were dropping bombs on leadership targets that did take out uh, civilians. And uh, that's where the Israelis' head is. Yeah, and and, and one of the things we could be saying is, um, uh, obviously we want to, everybody wants to limit uh, uh, civilian casualties as Israel does. And you heard Mike McCall, like, here's what the military is actually doing, if you take a look at it and get beyond some of the rhetoric. The other thing we say, look, we can't take a pause or a ceasefire. And I don't really understand the difference between those two words, um, because the Israelis should be acting on intelligence they have in pursuit of a strategy they're uh, affecting to take out Hamas as soon as possible. That this is not to allow you. You can't allow them to uh, take evasive action to have the time to take evasive action if you want this to be resolved sooner rather than later. Yeah, and the other thing is a ceasefire indicates two sides. Well, there aren't two sides. Right. Hamas officials are out publicly saying, no, our intifada, our uh, war against Israel to destroy Israel will continue, no matter if they pause or not. And of all people, you know, I, I can tell that you are aligned with Hillary Clinton on this. <laughs> and uh, I won't tell anybody, <laughs> but uh, that's what she said. Well, right. I mean, you're you're talking about Ghazi uh, Hamad, who uh, is a Hamas spokeswoman. He's on Lebanese television. Uh, We will repeat October 7th massacre time and again, a million times if we need to, until we end the occupation. The journalist asked him, occupation of Gaza? And he said, no, all of Israel. I mean, there's there's real clarity in that statement. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's in their charter. Uh, So... There is no ceasefire coming from that way, is, is my point. And um, I, I think, listen, the, the Israelis think about uh, civilian casualties a lot and how, and McCall rightly points out that the effort that they did with the dropping of the leaflets trying to move the civilian population to the south, the problem is, again, Hamas uses civilians right. around its headquarters and prevents them from moving to safety. Now, what do we know about, they said, you know, during the initial attack on October 7th that 30 Americans were killed or 29 or 30 and that 10 are being held hostage still. 
Do we know about their backstories or who they are? So we have a confirmed 17 on October 7th. Um, We have their pictures and their bios, and we're trying to get into, you know, finding some of those families. And some of them have talked out. Some of them have spoken out. Uh, the number 10 is, is what the government is going on as far as unaccounted for, believed to be held hostage in, in Gaza. Uh, on the, um, the politics of aid here, so, uh, of course, the House Republicans moved the standalone Israeli aid. That's a non-starter for John Kirby, um, uh, probably for a number of reasons, only one of which he gave. Uh, McCall said uh, in that same interview yesterday that, uh, you know, he sees all the threats linked together. Russia, Iran, Hamas, uh, Chinese Communist Party. Um, and so ultimately he sees a essentially a comprehensive aid package moving through the House. But there, there's a real divide in the Republican caucus, it seems to me, and it's growing between the McCall position and, say, the Speaker Johnson position. I agree. And I think Speaker Johnson is winning. I think that um, that that aid package to Israel that included pay-fors by pulling out the money from the IRS even got 12 Democratic votes. And so, you know, you have a bipartisan piece of legislation that is going to be tough for Senate Democrats to vote against and say, we are not going to give this immediate aid to Israel. So from a political standpoint, I think, you know, Johnson is kind of walking through the tulips here pretty well. He he wants to tie Ukraine aid to border security uh, to be able to get that through. And, you know, I, I think that that's an interesting way, a hat tip to the right of his caucus, uh, but still pushing through these aid packages. And if the president vetoes the Israeli aid, that's just not going to be a good look on the world stage either. Right. Uh, I wanted to get to um, the uh, massacre in Maine. And what we know, because, of course, the uh, Democrats have been using this as they normally do to tr- advance a, their call for gun bans, the sport weapon bans, some banning some sport rifles and that Kamala Harris uh, going a little bit further and suggesting a mandatory gun buyback Australian style. But we now know uh, this week that uh, the U.S. Army did take action against uh, the responsible person, that after he was um, taken to this hospital, uh, this West Point hospital in New York for evaluation, the U.S. Army said he was non-deployable and shouldn't have access to weapons. And so now we go, it seems to me, to question, well, if if that's what the U.S. Army concluded and uh, state police in Maine were notified, why wasn't that yellow flag law uh, it, uh, pursued uh, to its logical conclusion, which is to make sure that's part of his record in terms of any background check and to uh, pursue this individual with a perhaps more alacrity than the police, the domestic police did. Yeah, it wasn't the original access. It was the follow up that they that he was flagged already. And um, the fact that it didn't work shows sometimes these laws don't work. You know, they fall through the cracks. So there is an issue, big issue there, and there's obviously a big issue with mental health. I think there's going to be a, a real battle still, uh, and I don't see any movement about where we were politically about confiscating guns or the fact that um, that there's this big push. 
I don't see an assault weapons ban on its way down the pike anytime soon. Brett Baer, host of Fox News Special Report, weekdays 5 p.m., best-selling author of the just-released book, To Rescue the Constitution, George Washington and the Fragile American Experiment. Brett, thank you as always. Thanks, guys. Have a great weekend, and he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. There's only one radio show in Chicago talking about today's biggest stories and telling you what they really mean. That show is this one. Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. I remember way back before COVID in the uh, zeitgeist of marijuana legalization uh, all over the country, including Illinois, that there were some people expressing concerns about uh, legalization and what it would mean. But, uh, of course, uh, in many of the states that are most aggressive in pursuing legalization, uh, you have... uh, basically leftists who want to take over all of the mob's rackets and drugs is certainly part of that. You know, we see this in Chicago. It's with gambling and drugs. We're just waiting for prostitution to be legalized. Right? Exactly. That could be a revenue stream. There's no question. And uh, there have been proposals uh, in New York to do that from members of the city council there in New York City. Also in L.A., there's stories out you basically have de facto legalization. You have open-air sex markets in L.A., so that's probably coming, you know, because there's so much money in it. There were some concerns raised. Um, in fact, Alex Berenson, who most people know through COVID, before he was on the COVID beat, he was on the marijuana beat because of the experiences of his wife, who is a, a medical health professional, with uh, the incidence of psychosis, particularly among young people who are heavy marijuana users, but that's all by the boards. It's like sort of like worrying about uh, young kids and their screen time. Yeah. Don't worry about that. Um, not during, not during COVID and not since. What about like legalizing psychedelics, mushrooms? I mean, well, just look at that pilot, you know, off duty pilot who was on that plane who said he ate shrooms 48 hours before and he tried to bring down the plane. Well, uh, Colorado's uh, moved in that direction, but California, this is uh, the point I'm getting to California. Um, Patrick Bateman there, the governor of California, vetoed legislation that was mm-hmm. passed by the California General Assembly with supermajorities in both chambers. It would have uh, legalized psychedelics and authorized Amsterdam-style cannabis cafes. Mm-hmm. So what's the problem? There's not necessarily a problem, uh, said Newsom, quoting him here. Psychedelics have proven to relieve people suffering from certain conditions such as depression, PTSD, addictive personality traits. It's an exciting frontier, and California will be on the front end of leading it. But uh, we have to set up regulated treatment guidelines with dosing information, therapeutic guidelines, and so forth. The bill that made it to his desk would decriminalize possession prior to these guidelines going into place, which is why he said he couldn't sign it. I'm of course, we, we, it's safe uh, drug use and the ever-expanding category of drugs that the uh, libertarians and mob economists of the world want to advance. So h- how is it going with marijuana? I, I think we're, I think marijuana 
legalization is now in more states than school choice. That's sort of just an interesting cultural comment, isn't it? I, I think so. That's why I made it. For uh, more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Luke Neforatos. Do you want me to take this one, Dan? I can. I, I mean, I just, I just said it for the break. I don't know why. You know, sometimes my synapses misfire. Luke Neforatos is the executive president, executive vice president for Smart Approaches to Marijuana. He joins us now. Luke, sorry for butchering your name. Thanks for joining us. Man, no, no problem, Amy. Thank you all for having me back on after uh, several years. Pleasure. Yeah. And uh, my last name is a is a is a Greek last name straight out of uh, Chicago where I was born. So uh, okay. oh, definitely, you, you did a good job. You, you nailed it on the second time around. <laughs> I should. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get chastised by John Cass for that mispronunciation. Um, all right. So uh, Luke, um, what is the state of play with uh, marijuana legalization, and and what's your read on why uh, California would pump the brakes on cannabis cafes and legalization of psychedelics yeah well you know so it's uh, been nine years since uh colorado became the first state to legalize recreational marijuana um we have about 22 states so less than half the american states have chosen to legalize recreational um and we have about 30 states with kind of you know different kinds of laws some smaller some larger on quote unquote medical marijuana and what we're seeing right now, and I just wrote a piece on uh, on this in this latest issue of the Spectator about this. So for those who subscribe to that, they can read a, a long form piece on what's going on. Uh, but the, really, what we're seeing is the black market is dominating the supposedly quote unquote legal market uh, in in legal states. So you know, a state like California, eighty percent of all the marijuana sold and consumed in California is still done on the black market. Um, and this is, you know, on nearly a decade after they legalized it. Um, Colorado, black market dominates. We have three new foreign cartels that are illegally growing and selling marijuana in Colorado. Um, and it continues elsewhere. Oregon, 70% is done on the black market. So uh, the, the, the promise of getting rid of the drug dealers, the promise of getting rid of the cartels uh, has gone up in smoke. Uh, the, the legal market just can't compete from a tax standpoint. Um, as well as just from an ease of consumption standpoint, it's just easier to uh, buy marijuana from your friends or from the dealer on the street than, than it is um, from the legal market. So I anticipate that will continue. Um, you mentioned the psychosis and, and, and kind of health-related issues. Those continue to, to spiral in, in legal states. Um, we've seen uh, an, an almost 2,000% increase across the country in kids being exposed to marijuana edibles for their you know, um, you know, two-year-olds consuming marijuana gummy bears, going to the hospital, et cetera. Um, also seeing new kinds of uh, illnesses coming. So uh, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, it's uncontrollable vomiting. Um, we're getting upwards of 100 Americans now who have died from this. Um, what happens is uh, for someone who's heavily using marijuana, they get this syndrome where they just can't stop vomiting, and some call it scrominging, screaming and vomiting at the same time. Um, and, and people are dying from that and, and really suffering from that, hitting the ERs. Uh, so th those are some of the new things we're seeing, some of the outcomes we're seeing. And this was predicted. Um, you know, the American Medical Association, every medical association was against legalization of marijuana, continues to be against it for these reasons of what we're talking about. Um, and, and this was something that, that Illinois uh, was warned very sternly about uh, back in 2019 when, when they uh, slammed this through. Wow, what the scrominging thing? So, where are these people? You said there a hundred Americans have died from it. Yes, it's it's a brand new. We we really hadn't seen this illness before. They they still haven't even given it a diagnosis code yet. They're they're in the process of doing that. 
Um, because, it, it, you know, for those of you who are listening, do you know any ED physicians, any em- emergency room docs? Ask them about uh, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. I promise you they will tell you they're seeing it every single night in the ERs now, um, certainly happening in Colorado as well. Um, and, yeah, what essentially is happening is people are coming in, they're vomiting, they're vomiting, they're vomiting, they can't stop. And for a while, there were, you know, people had no idea what the source was, and they realized that every single person who was coming in was a very heavy marijuana user. And so we're realizing um, that, you know, this is cannabis hyperemesis. It's, it's a new uh, phenomenon that is just happening all across the country now as people are, are using at a heavier rate than ever before. And uh, one of the, the points that uh, Berenson made in his book several years back was you have to understand a couple of things about what's being legalized. This is not uh, your uh, parents or grandparents Woodstock marijuana. The THC uh, content is much stronger and thus, you know, much more dangerous. That's correct. Yeah. So I think, you know, everyone thought in certainly in Colorado, where I live now, uh, when, when we voted on this, people thought we were voting on, you know, the joints and kind of, you know, just make it so my my neighbor who smokes the joint, you know, every other night, uh, you know, doesn't go to jail for it. And that's just not what this was about. This was about commercializing, creating a massive new industry around marijuana that has taken the marijuana plant, which in a, you know, quote unquote, state of nature, was around 1% to 3% THC. That's the ingredient that gets you high. Now we're talking about products that are 99% potency um, in the form of dabs. Uh, for those of you who haven't heard of dabbing, um, look it up. That is the new in- insanely high-potency way to consume marijuana. And and it's just having a whole different effect on your brain. Um, Berenson gets at this, and, and also it's in the scientific literature, that people who use today's high-potency marijuana on a regular basis are five times more likely to develop schizophrenia psychosis, other forms of mental illness, um, and we're seeing multiple new large population-level studies verifying uh, that this is happening. And And what we've done is we've shotgunned these brand-new products on the population, not knowing the risks, and basically experimenting um, on our public. And, and particularly in, in Illinois, um, you know, th- there was this push during COVID of, you know, listen to the scientists. And all the scientists, medical professionals... Um, you know, the head of the Illinois Medical uh, Society, for example, you know, testified in Illinois, uh, urging them caution, urging them to slow down, don't do this. Um, the, the, the science has a lot of warnings out there about this. And it was slammed through anyway. And you can't help but wonder, you know, uh, you have Governor J.B. Pritzker, the Pritzker family, uh, you know, they're big, heavily invested in the Juul, uh, which is in the marijuana game. They're, they're heavily invested in the marijuana industry. And um, and also, you know, Joby Pritzker is on the uh, or was on the board of the nation's top pro marijuana organization. So you just kind of help but wonder if there were some some other things involved in that that rush to legalize, other than listening to the scientists. Yeah, sometimes I experience scrummeting when I think about the Pritzker family, um, but uh, but, it, but it goes away. Uh, so uh, you know, I, I this is just an anecdote, um, but it, it speaks to what you're talking about. Uh, I have a friend whose son, in his mid twenties. Uh, during COVID, as a lot of kids did, unfortunately, that were locked yeah, in and locked down, started um, using marijuana very heavily, and he had a psychotic break. He uh, had run-ins with the law. He tore apart uh, his apartment. I mean, just destroyed it for no particular reason. He uh, got very close, if it wasn't for his dad's intervention, into serving jail time for some of his run-ins with the law, and he was a wall. I mean, he 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 
he was doing a, a lot of crazy things. I don't need to go into the details. Um, and it was really touch and go to pull him back, uh, institutionalization. And it took a good year, year and a half to sort of bring him back to 80 to 90 percent of normalcy where he could hold a job and be productive and um, and be peaceful. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I, I and I'm sure other people have stories like this within their orbits. Uh, so, I mean, this this is not, you know, uh, 700 club type of, of finger wagging about people who use marijuana. It's a discussion of what the uh, what the pitfalls are that really got short shrifted and continues to. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this, this, this is something that, you know, whether you're right, left in the center, um, if you value just reality and the facts, that that's what this is about. I mean, the, the facts are, we're promised that this is a safe regulated market where kids aren't getting into it. That's just completely false. It hasn't played out in any of the states that have legalized it. We're just looking at the data coming out of these states. Um, and, and, and what we're seeing is black markets thriving. Drug dealers are doing better than ever. Um, our kids, are getting into marijuana because it's more accessible than it's ever been. And, and I think that's the key you know, thing to think about. You all were talking about some of the other legalization efforts out there, uh, prostitution, psychedelics, and, and other such things. The reason why we don't legalize uh, you know, th- these, these behaviors and substances that we know are harmful to society is not because – so you know, there's the, the comparison of marijuana and alcohol. alcohol. And some people say you know, alcohol is worse than marijuana could be, and it's legal – and, 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 and the reason why we don't want to follow suit with marijuana, not because it's going so great with alcohol. We have 100,000 Americans every year that die from alcohol-related deaths. And that's not because – and by the way, that's, you know, alcohol has been killing more Americans every year than fentanyl has been for the last several years until just this, just this year. Fentanyl surpassed alcohol. I don't think anyone thinks alcohol is more harmful than fentanyl. What the, deal, what the difference is is that alcohol is legally available for com- commercial sale and access. And so you have a large number of the population using it, and we see the magnitude of the harms of that substance at a population level. When we have drugs um, made illegal uh, for, for common use, they're not as accessible. We don't see the harms happen at a population level. Um, we don't see them magnified in that way and, and expanded by an industry that is trying to sell them to more people and get more people to use them more. So the point being, with legal marijuana, it's more accessible than ever. It's more advertised than ever because it's legal. And we see the harms on in more people um, at a greater scale. And so I think that's the point that needs to be made here is it's not that, oh, it's worse or better than any other substance. It's when it's legal, then the industry is making it worse. It's making it more addictive. Um, you know, one in three people who use marijuana in the last year now, this new high-potency marijuana, they're developing an addiction. Um, so this commercial model... It exacerbates the harms and the access for kids as well as the general public. Yeah, the whole the whole argument uh, it's not as harmful as alcohol and alcohol is legal is so tired to me. Um, Anthony Esselin has a good response to that, which I've adopted as my own, uh, the academic and uh, theologian. He, he said, um, so just because we can't prohibit everything doesn't mean we shouldn't prohibit anything. You know, you have to live in the real world and right. and, and what the, what you can generate popular support for and, 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 and so forth. I mean, we're, we can't eliminate risk and we can't eliminate people engaged in risky behavior and in, in, in terms of uh, including in terms of consumption. But um, 
But I mean, for those who want to make that argument about legalization, alcohol versus marijuana, as you just made, well, alcohol uh, is the proximate cause of death for more people than fentanyl. So by that uh, logic, we should legalize fentanyl, too. And you'll have some libertarians say that. But I don't think that's where uh, the popular opinion is. And so, you know, that that uh, little fortune cookie, uh, it's not as dangerous as alcohol argument really doesn't hold up in the real world. That's right. That's right. And I think with psychedelics, you know, it was interesting to see California Governor uh, Gavin Newsom, as you all alluded, uh, veto that bill. And what's in, in it, we can obviously, you know, I think we all know there's political motivations and broader aspirations that he has, and you know, probably insulating him from, you know, in terms of appearing like a more moderate candidate later, and that maybe that's what went into his decision. But what's interesting is what he noted, um, and you, you rightly quoted what, what he noted there, which is that there's no clinical guidelines. There's no dosing for these, these substances. And, and by the way, we, you know, you all have, quote-unquote, medical marijuana in Illinois. There's no dosage or, or guidelines for that either. I mean, you, you don't have doctors saying, you know, take two puffs of your, quote-unquote, medical marijuana joint, um, you know, for your medicine. Same situation with psychedelics. And, and so it's just an acknowledgement of the fact that we are at a place where industry profiteers and entrepreneurs who want to deal drugs under a legal guideline in this country are, are, are doing whatever they can. They're selling it as, are trying to sell it as medicine, even though there's no dosage, there's no guidelines. There, yes. There's no medical validation of right. these substances to be used by patients. Uh, and, and, and that's what's happening. And during it's, COVID, it's you, you had medical marijuana and there was a line. You got to the front of the line. It was so goofy. Well, it's not, it's not you, me- can't, it, you can't be on TSA pre-check, too, if you're on medical marijuana, if you're signed up for that. Well, well it, it, this whole medical marijuana, it's an oxymoron. Yeah. Um, and it's just a backdoor to full legalization, of course, mm-hmm. as you know. But, it, you know, as um, uh, I can't remember which um, med school uh, academic made this point. It, it's not medicine. Stop saying it's just it's not medicine. It's a toxin. So let's just call things what they are and then have a discussion about some toxins that should be legal or not legal and the environment, which they should be. But stop calling it medicine. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's it's part of the, the game plan. So, you know, you have the one of the leaders of the legal, marijuana legalization movement um, back in the late 70s said, you know, we've we failed at, at selling this substance and something needs to be legalized. So we're going to call it medical marijuana and that will be our our game plan to get it legalized and 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 it worked you know and what's what what's hilarious is we have no dosage no prescription when you take this this substance as a medication you have no idea how it in, you know contraindicates with other medications that you're taking um you know we're now learning that um uh, i don't know if you all saw that the research that came out a couple months ago that uh if you go in for surgery they are telling surgery centers and surgeons you have to to ask people if they're using marijuana because um, they, uh, marijuana users require ten times the anesthetic uh, in surgeries that non marijuana users require. Um, there's also a, a number of now complications they're finding in surgeries, um, certain kinds of surgeries for uh, marijuana users that put them more at risk. So it, it's a very at risk behavior now um, as you're going in for some of these elective surgeries, and, and that's just one of the many things. And and what I'll tell you is. There's a reason why we have the FDA in this country. There's a reason why we have a process for medicine in this country. It's that when you get a, me- a medicine that is to be prescribed, um, by the time it's approved for prescriptions, you know what other substances it interacts with, and doctors understand what they need to do with that substance if, you're, if you are um, receiving it as a medication and you're going to receive some sort of procedure. They don't have any of that with marijuana. And if they do the same thing with psychedelics, which Colorado uh, last year legalized, quote-unquote, medical psychedelics, wonder where they got that idea from, uh, you know, uh, they, uh, then you're going to find yourself in that exact same situation. 
He is Luke Niferatos. He's the executive vice president for Smart Approaches to Marijuana. Luke, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Amy. And, and God bless you all. Thank you. Very informative. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is the morning show. More Chicago radio listeners are choosing. This is Chicago's morning answer on AM560. The answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, October jobs number 150,000. Unemployment rate ticked up to 3.9%. Not that I place much value in those statistics, particularly because they're almost forever revised significantly uh, after the month after they're announced. Anyway, uh, that's uh, good news, right? We want uh, fewer jobs created. We need more people out of work. That's the position of Fed Chairman Jay Powell, I thought, to bring down inflation, uh, bring down the uh, pressure on wage increases and associated price increases. So good news. Stay the course. Thousand points of light, right? For a more on that, James Perry joins us, founder, CIO of Perry International Capital Partners. James, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Good morning. So uh, everything's going according to plan. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, uh, 150,000 jobs, uh, 180 expected. Um, and again, you know, like you said, the statistics are a little bit goofy. I think the number probably would have been 198 or 200 without the strikes and that's so that's sort of you know 48,000 people or something so uh we are coming down on the job growth uh, i think the last 12 months job gains have been sort of 266,000 a month so 150 is a lot lower than that uh and if you go back two years when the stimulus was all here we were getting sort of 379 new jobs a month over the last 24 months so uh, the economy is slowing. Uh, the Atlanta GDP number, uh, well, the GDP number for Q3 came in at 4.9, and Atlanta Fed expectations for Q4 are down to sort of 1.2% now, something like that. So desired effect, higher rates have slowed the economy, no doubt. Well, with his abysmal numbers, I mean, Biden's, he's going throughout the Midwest campaigning on Bidenomics, touting it as a success. Yeah, that's that's kind of a problem. I mean, um, I just, the, the economy is definitely yeah. right. Um, you know, listening to Powell a few days ago, you know, he seemed gratified that uh, the economy hasn't collapsed more. Um, and as Judy Sheldon said this morning, he, he's really more bewildered because, you know, the reason we haven't slowed down more is all this fiscal deficit spending. And uh, if the government hasn't been spending so much money, the economy would be in a recession already. And the fact is that at some point, you know, you see it today, the dollar's going down hard. And the reason for it is that the government can't afford to spend this money. And uh, if they weren't doing it, it'd be a lot wait, worse off. Wait, 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 they can't, they can't, can't but, but, the, but this is the, the paradox. They can't afford to be spending all this money. We can't afford to be spending all this money, printing and spending all this money, but we can't afford not to. Yeah, I mean that's it's it's unhealthy at best, you know. Um, I think that 
what has really changed things, everybody in the country knows that prices are really high, right? Everybody knows it. Every household, every small business, and the cost of money is high, too. Um, so the economy is not doing that great. But I think the, the surprise has been how strong consumer spending has been really through the summer. It's starting to slow down now. But, you know, consumers were leading the economy. And um, I think Powell didn't even bring up the two things that he was supposed to bring up. You know, he did not answer the questions about the two issues that are really worrying in, in investors the most, inflation and budget deficits. Didn't, not a word. Didn't talk about it. You know, so that's, that's the, the whole story in a nutshell. So um, uh, half of uh, S&P companies have reported earnings, and uh, I, I read from your newsletter the average about uh, uh, profitability, about 2.7%. So, I mean, uh, I know the story is that business investment is way down, but profitability isn't, and so we're going to continue to uh, – click along, maybe not at 4.9% uh, GDP growth uh, on a quarterly basis, but we're going to continue to click along. So, so again, stay the course. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, oh, I, I was looking last night at the, uh, the earnings from Apple, right? And if you think about Apple, which is, you know, biggest company in the world, most valuable company in the world, top line revenues are down again for sort of, I think that's the fourth this is the fourth quarter in a row the top line revenues are down for Apple for all kinds of reasons, you know, manufacturing in China and, and expensive toys. But the fact is net income is up. And if you look at the S&P companies that have been reporting, they all have one thing in common. Revenues are fairly reasonable, but profitability is still running at, you know, 7%, 8%, 10%, 12% profitability, net income increases. And, that is really about inflation, right? I mean, you know, you look at these consumer products companies, uh, the goods we buy in the grocery stores, um, the packaging is smaller, and the prices are going up, and people are still, to this date, up through the summer anyway, through the last quarter, are still not being dissuaded to spend because of higher prices. And what we see now, I think, really, is that that's changing pretty quickly. People are just going to sort of start boycotting spending and i think that c wow. consumer spending is going to come down well, we got you know, the holidays right around the corner it's going to be hard i know it's the holiday quarter as they call it and um retailers you know routinely make 50 percent of their net profits in the next mm. two months you know for the year so maybe they go into more debt we got this credit card issue that's rising every day um we'll see it's going to be interesting i mean I think the biggest problem is we're going to slow down and we're going to keep inflating. And that's the same story we've had, which we've been talking about on this program for, you know, 24 months. That's a stagflation economy. And um, if the president wants to brag about that, you know, people aren't going to buy it. Right. So. Well, Amy, if you don't want to buy me a Christmas present this year, I'll understand. Oh. Don't worry about that. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I'll give, give you an experience. You get to see yeah, me. We can absolutely. spend some time together. Um, but, um, uh, but, but the equities markets are still, you know, um, there's a little bit of a, of a hiccup, almost uh, moving the NASDAQ into correction territory last week. But the, we're rebounding. You know, uh, equities markets are performing uh, positively. So... 
you know, I know you put this distribution of where your money is uh, in your newsletter. Um, can you tell our listeners what percentage of your portfolio is in equities? Yeah, it's uh, less than 10%. Wow. Um, well, I'm getting 5.5% on sort of 85% of the portfolio, and, and that's okay for now because, you know, the S&P, even with this last couple days of rally here, um, it's still down 6% on the year, right? I mean, and it doesn't let's, – let's put it this way. The stock market – is very, very happy since Wednesday for two reasons. Number one, the Treasury made the decision or realized, came to the realization that they can't continue to bring supply in the longer end of the Treasury curve because people aren't going to buy it. And that's deficit spending. So you are beginning to see the government have to react to the bond vigilantes out there. So more and more of this issuance is coming in the short end of the curve. Um, and the stock market thinks that the Fed is done, right? I mean, this is the whole deal. Has the Fed finished tightening? And just about everybody on Wall Street will say, yes. Now the question is, you know, what do you do from here? And what you do from here is you probably keep inflating. So I think at some point here, you're going to either see rates go back up again. I would not be buying bonds here, to be honest with you. Um, you got a negative real yield. If you want to buy a bond right now, you're going to lock in a negative real yield, right? That's not a good investment. So Bonds are here, but they haven't really gone very much further than they've been for the last sort of three months or six months, uh, which is higher. But, you know, again, Powell is not worried, or let me put it this way, Powell is thrilled that his rate increases over the last, since March of 22, have not slammed the economy into a recession. He's ecstatic and, that that has happened. And has the uh, any problems? No. And the impact of the geopolitics uh, war I'm talking about, the impact uh, yeah. so far has been negligible? Um, the oil prices are lower today than when October 8th hostilities started. And I think that surprised a lot of people. Um, the dollar is drifting downward. And rates are lower, and there is a certain element of flight to quality with respect to the bond market. There's no question about that. The world's a dangerous place. But I think that there are global investors who are reluctant to buy treasuries here because they are worried that this country's deficit situation can only get worse um, without the government taking some actions to change their behavior. So... Something's got to give eventually. And uh, for now, we can sit here and just wait for everything to be sort of neutral uh, and hope that the stock market doesn't go down and that the economy doesn't slow down too much further. So uh, slow-moving train, I think. Jim Perry is the founder and CIO of Perry International Capital Partners. James, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Have a good weekend, Dan and Amy. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is Chicago's morning answer. Your show keeps me alive during the week. There's nobody I'd rather listen to between 5 and 9 in the morning than you guys. On AM 560, the answer. Open mic. Open mic Friday. Call it now. Open mic Friday. 
Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. That means it's that time of the week. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. Taking your calls with comments, compliments, concerns, criticisms, general correct pottery. We'll take it all. Open Mic Friday is presented by Turnkey.pro, your small business partner. Visit them online at turnkey.pro. And we're pleased to kick off Open Mic Friday as we do with David Kolsak, the founder of Turnkey.pro. And uh, do we have uh, another installment of Colsack's questions today, David? Oh, I love it. Well, you, you might have. Um, I just got to tell you, I'm a little hoarse today because I was at the uh, Pitbull concert last night. Talk about a circus. Um, it was fun. I mean, uh, Pitbull was great. The dancers certainly were amazing. And um, Enrique Iglesias looked like he was lip syncing, and uh, Ricky Martin was still awesome. But super hyper Martin. show. Ricky Martin's, uh, wow. What kind of seats yeah, did you cool. have? You can run, you can uh, hide, but you can't escape my love. Did you sing along to that Enrique Iglesias song? Talk to me. Tell me. A, tell me your name. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it's such a good, uh, it's a good show. I, I mean, it br- brings you back to uh, kind of times of old, and it was a little more innocent back then. But anyway, uh, did, wait. Did they ask you to sit like, in with? Did they ask you to sit in with the band? Hell no, man. I don't think there was a band. It seemed like they were playing to track, but I don't. I mean, it was cool. They had drummers, and you know, it looked they pantomimed a show, but it was. I mean, it was really cool. Well done. Right. And, um, you know, I don't know if it was worth the big money, but it was fun. It was really fun. But I paid $46 for two, two Modellos, right? Um, <laughs> going back to your conversation. You're kidding me. You know, earlier you were talking about marijuana, and you're like, you know, what's the appeal of marijuana and all this? But I, I'm going to go with it's a lot cheaper than drink. I mean, are, the, are the, the alcohol companies, the beer companies, and the United Center and everybody in general pushing us to just use other drugs? Because, honestly, although it's legal, $46 for two beers? I mean... It seems ridiculous. I used to remember getting pitchers of beer for a quarter in college. I mean, I know that I'm old, right, Amy? Yeah, a dime draws. You know, it's sports calm on Tuesdays. Well, so real quick about the concert was what what was the crowd like? Was it people your age or any younger kids? Oh, there were a lot of people my age. Um, In fact, I would say the majority. I didn't. I mean, we were in the 200 level section, so there weren't a ton of um, kids in the area. I mean, I had my son with me; he's 15, and we we had a great time. I mean, it was really fun. We were. Good, good seats. But I think the crowd was super, you know, super cool. And I would say mostly between 35 and 55. Yeah, well, pit, well Pitbull's your age. I mean, that's <laughs> just not yeah, quite. Right. So but, I mean, and Ricky Martin. Yeah, stud. I still, you know, it's still weird that he's he's not heterosexual. I mean, just he's a stud. <laughs> I mean, no question about it. Uh, you remember him from his Menudo days, don't you? Of, of, of course. Why not? Doesn't, you know, there, I mean... there was, yeah. <laughs> All right. I hope you didn't um, have a post round. But anyway, so yeah, go ahead. So what I want to say, like today, I, I just want to know: Are we being lied to? You know, I always yes. feel like the messaging <laughs> is emotive. Yeah, exactly. And fear sells, just like the beer, but for a lot less money. Um, um, you know, why is there just more fear than courage, right? And you know, aren't the worst decisions that people make, you know, especially financially, uh, based on fear? You know, when it comes to investing. If you're afraid that you're going to lose your money, you dump it. Sometimes that's the wrong decision. So, anyone remember the the '70s? We were told about the the coming ice age. You know, did that happen? Then Al Gore predicted the world would end by 2014 due to global warming. Did that happen? Was that a lie? You know, are there any retractions? You know, and everybody's blaming climate change now. Did anyone ever hear of HARP? H A A R P. You know, that's something to look to. You know, what's with all the lies? You know, why are we seemingly presented with a problem where there's already a solution? Remember. The Patriot Act that just happened to be ready, you know, right after 9-11. And how was it done so quickly? And we all just went along with it. Okay, no problem. 
weapons of mass destruction. Maybe I missed the apology for that one. 15 days to flatten the curve. What was what was that all about? Was that just a mechanism to keep moving the goalposts? Remember all the meetings and milestones that Fatty McButterpants, um, I think, Dan, you call him Jelly Belly, right? Yeah. Um, he met him. We met them all, and we were still on a lockdown. You know, uh, uh, and how many people just gave up their rights? Right. Remember, remember the bridge to get to the five stages right. to get. To, I mean, oh my God, it's such craziness at those. Times. And we got through them. And I, you were at all those meetings or all uh, those press conferences, and, and he just kept moving the goalposts. But uh, remember, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. You know, they were horse paste. Don't use them. They're bad. Now they're okay. Yeah. You know, why stand six feet apart? Why, why isn't it seven or five or twelve? You know, did wearing a mask ever do anything other than, you know, psychologically, mentally? Is it physiologically effective? I don't think so. I mean, I, I don't know. You know, our whole lives we've been, you know, conditioned to hate the Russians. Remember, like, the Miracle on Ice, you know, back in 1980? I know you guys probably do. I love we that had movie. fallout drills and we, you know, in a, hiding underneath our, our, our desks. Like, that was going to do anything for a nuclear threat. And then we beat them in 1980 in hockey. And right. it was like we had just won, like, a super war, right? And you know, but now we still send more money to other countries to protect than our own. And, you know, we've been conditioned to think that China, Russia, Iran, and, you know, quote unquote, insert any country here, they're evil because they propagandize their people and they limit their rights. But isn't that exactly what the U.S. does, right? Well, I think there are degrees to that. I, I wouldn't compare, I mean, uh, with all the cultural criticisms I have of the United States, I wouldn't compare us to the mullahs in Tehran That's a, or, or Putin. Well, true. Or, you know, I mean, so there are, there's proportional. And we don't, we don't hate Russians. I love Mikhail Gorbachev. Uh, I love Chekhov's work. <laughs> I, so we, we're, we're conditioned to hate uh, totalitarianism, which is uh, a good thing. I think so, too. But at the same time, most Americans now, you know, they don't recognize that reality. The rest of the world is now, you know, recognizing that the U.S. is kind of not so good and they're fed up with our, our government's nonsense. Right. I mean, we're seeing it all over the uprising. Go to Europe, be an American over there. It feels different. It's I, I think it's just time that we question everything that we're told and shown. You know, it's, it's seemingly different than it was 20 years ago when they said something on the news. At least it is for me. They would tell me something and I would believe it. Right. And you no. Know, now I don't believe it anymore. I almost think the opposite. It's like a mirror. You know, it seems to anyway, me like uh, I, I don't know if you heard our conversation with uh, Shee Van Fleet earlier in the program today, but it just seems like me uh, to me. We we don't do a very good job of connecting dots and we don't do a good job of learning from history. And we should perhaps listen to and familiarize ourselves with uh, the works of Alexander Solzhenitsyn to understand what uh, the Soviet Union was. We should uh, listen to what Shee Van Fleet has to say about Mao's Cultural Revolution to understand what that experience was like. And and really, um, the China, China today is uh, uh, never recovered from that Cultural Revolution. They've really, I mean, the paradigm shift is slight, if at all. And uh, so it just seems to me like that, you know this this the constant battle between those who want to live in a free society and those who are interested in subjugating others and who call that a free society or call that saving our democracy. You know, it seems to me that the um, the the fight is the same fight. It's just being presented by different people with different agendas in a different way. And I, 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 I get where you're going with that. But, you know, my point is, is that we, we get told all these things. And then months later on Friday afternoon, when nobody's like listening or watching or reading the paper, they, um, you know, they don't retract it or, or they, they say, OK, I, I made a mistake. Sorry. But nobody ever hears that. I, I just think, again, we need a lot more discernment today and figuring out what we're doing. And um, anyway, so 
Why not no question, question everything they tell us? That's all. Very Have a great good. day, guys. Thanks for the call, Thank David Kolsak. He is the founder of Turnkey.pro. Dan, and, anything you'd like to get off your chest before uh, we go to you know, callers? I do. I do want to. I'm gonna let's take some callers, um, okay. but I do have this um, ordinance. You know, in the midst of all the migrant business and the effort to get a ballot question on Sanctuary City on next spring's ballot, mm-hmm. there's some, another ordinance that moved in the city of Chicago that relates to uh, employees' time off and imposition oh, yeah. of. Uh, the regulation of the employer employment re- uh, relationship by the city of Chicago that's moved out of committee and certainly will move through the council and certainly will be signed by BLM Brandon. And I think people should know about this. I think there's a real lesson here, but I'll, I'll uh, hold my powder for a minute or two. Do, do you have anything? Yeah, I have like a that? Bobby Knight kicker that I oh, think okay. you'd, you'd right. love. Let's, I love Bobby I'll just Knight. go real quick. Uh, since. 83 years old, passed away, uh, family and saying in lieu of flowers, donate money to the Alzheimer's Association. Uh, he, he made a recruitment video for the Marine Corps. And these are some takeout because, you know, he did take after take after take. And then this is a blooper. You want to join the team? Well, I'll tell you, if you're good enough, quit f***ing around and get your ass into your Marine recruiter right now. <laughs> tell a son of a bitch that you want to be part of the team and God do it right now. How's that? It's uh, Patton-esque. Does, does uh, that have the kind of bite you're looking for? Because <laughs> they told him, like, okay, a little more feisty. And he's like, oh, I'll give you feisty. He oh, is, I love him. He, uh. he, well, he was the best. And there was a good piece, actually, in the Indy Star about Bobby Knight, a little bit about what we were talking about yesterday upon the, the uh, awful news of his passing. Uh, and that is, you know, he never talked about the things that he did that were uh, – that that were philanthropic or altruistic. I mentioned Landon Turner. I mean, of course, Landon Turner was one of the best, perhaps the best basketball player he ever coached, and he uh, was tragically paralyzed in a car accident mm. uh, the year after he uh, led Indiana to a national championship. And the relationship that he had with Landon Turner and what he did for Landon Turner, um, that wasn't really covered in John Feinstein's season on the brink, and and that what and it, it was something that Bobby Knight didn't care about. He didn't care about if people knew the uh, money he donated uh, to education, how committed he was to uh, making sure student athletes were student right. athletes, got an education because most were not going to make it to the pros. Um, the relationships he had with some of the professors on campus. He wasn't just sort of this fire, you know, fire-breathing uh, coach at all times. He was a lot more textured than the media caricature of him would lead you to believe. And, um, I, you know, he's one of the most important uh, coaches in sport in the last 50 years. And um, with the importance that we place on coaches, rightly so, the impact they can have on young people— you know, for those who are not familiar with sort of the full picture of Bobby Knight, maybe on the occasion of his passing, you get familiar with it. Uh, all right, let's take a couple of calls. Uh, Ralph and Wilmette. Hey, guys. Um, thank you very much for the week you've given. It's all been very, very interesting and useful. And I just thought uh, someone was yelling at me about we're doing socialism, not communism. And I thought it worth pointing out but the difference between socialism and communism is theoretical. And by the time you're choosing between them, you've given up your liberty and that's important. Thank you. Uh, 
Yeah, thanks for calling. I, I, I always lean on Lenin here in terms of making the distinction, the difference between uh, communism and socialism. Uh, communism is just socialism in a hurry. Mm. It's a matter of pace. It's not a, it's not a matter of substance. Uh, Ken Rogers Park. Hey, Dan and Amy, good morning. Happy Friday. I wanted to thank you so much for focusing so much of your show on anti-Semitism. And uh, especially last week, you played a great clip of Christine Amanpour, uh, one of the most respected media clowns in Washington and one of the, mo- one of the worst anti-Semites on TV. Uh, and I'm sure, Dan and Amy, people come up to you a lot and say, why do you care about anti-Semitism? You're not Jewish. And I, I, I go back to what your, your midday host, Dennis Prager, says, which is that anti-Semitism always leads to violence. It, it's, it, it is a de- destroyer of civilization. And uh, Jews are often the first, but they are never the last to be attacked. So I don't think people realize how serious this situation is where so many Americans are caught up in this frenzy of Jew hatred and Israel hatred. And I just wanted to thank you for your focus on this particular point. Uh, our pleasure. Thank you for the call. Um, what what speak, year is this? Think, uh, thanks for the call, Ken. Um, I mean, Martin Niemöller, right? The Lutheran, uh, the German theologian, Lutheran pastor. First they came. You know, everybody's familiar with that quote. Yeah. Uh, maybe maybe we need to be reminded of that. You know, first they came for the socialists, and I wasn't a socialist, so I didn't stand up. And for, then they came for the labor unionists, and I was a labor unionist, and I didn't stand up. And for, then they came for the Jews, and I was a wasn't a Jew, so I didn't stand up. And then they came for me, and there was nobody left to stand up for me. Yeah, I mean, um, the what you're hearing from Hamas and so many other quarters on the left. Yeah, just just what I said before at the history that we haven't some of us have not learned from. And by the way, this is also an opportunity for the left to uh, to offer commentary like this in Salon.com. MAGA and Christian nationalism, bigger threat to America than Hamas could ever be. Oh, please. Right. So and it's completely unsurprising editorial, uh, particularly given the source. But this is the play of the left always, is to demonize people, to divide, and to instigate hate. And so you say, well, well they're, they're focused on the Jews. Well, they're, 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 some are, and, but it's part of a bigger play, as Ken was just mentioning. Well, even KJP, I mean, she's, they call out MAGA, MAGA extremists, but they're not calling out MAGA leftists. MAGA leftists. I mean, not MAGA leftists. I'm sorry, liberal leftists who you know are pro Hamas. It's uh, in driving into the city yesterday, and you know, an inbound Kennedy. There was a huge Palestinian flag flying over one of the bridges. Like, oh my God! Rick in Downers Grove. Hey, good morning. Uh, yeah, this is in regards to that history lesson of Tuesday morning. You know, when they talked about uh, Martin Luther and he might have had an experience of epiphany because he was constipated. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I enjoy his. I enjoy history as much as anybody, and I'm I'm not an uh, an authority on it, but uh, I've never heard that before, and that sounds like a load of crap to me. Hi, O. Hey. Thanks for the call, Rick. <laughs> Frank and Palatine. Good morning, guys. Uh, great show as always. Um, I'm kind of concerned. Everyone's talking proportionality. Proportionality. Well, we have 330 million Americans. They have 9 million Jews. If you divide 330 by 9, you get 52. I'm sorry, you get uh, 30, 30, uh, 37. 
multiply that times nine, you get 51,000. That's what we'd have lost. What if America lost 51,000 people? What would we be doing? What would Biden be doing? Would he be expecting proportionality on the people who attacked America? 51,000. Keep that number in mind. Forget the 1,400. Keep doing the great work, guys. I love you. Thanks, Frank. Joe, Arlington Heights. Good morning. You know, this has been a pretty interesting week from Monday talking about what was happening in South Africa. Uh, yesterday, you had a terrific young undergrad from Stanford on, very articulate woman, uh, all talking about, you know, in essence, wokeism. Uh, so I, I was inspired to write a poem about it, and I call the poem The Lubricant of Hate. There are things that make life rich, like mighty struggles won, or bitter lessons from battles lost when we refuse to dwell on cost. But alongside of these lessons learned, something schemes to take its turn. It's the lubricant of hate with its power to make gratitude abate. It's not of race, gender, nor Judeo-Christian creed. Far from these things lies hate, true seed. It's a treacherous slope to despair, having sprung from Mark's own lair. It's at the heart of today's woke craze in which the dupe robotically say, I'm the victim, it's just my lot. Responsibility, agency, I have not. So now with ease, the woke strive to spot all the oppressors like Jews and cops. We must hate successful family men. Yes, what used to be ideal way back when. Victimhood is the lubricant of hate. Don't look within, just blame fate. Refuse to think or debate. Self-righteousness has become your trait. Grieve we must for what is lost. Charity's greatest gift is the cost. That gift of God upon us he did bless. It's the death of forgiveness, nothing less. Uh, very good, Joe. Wow. Joe from Arlington Heights, the poet laureate of uh, Chicago's Morning Answer. That was excellent. Some well smart done. people up Thank in Arlington Heights. Well done. Thank yeah, you for that, Joe. smart people here. Yeah. There's, uh, yeah we gave see. birth to people like Amy. You yes. Know. You're doing right. You're it doing. says a lot. Well, yeah. I'm glad you liked it. Thanks for the cause. That was wonderful. Very good. Thank you. Uh, I love Rich, Indian Head Park. Hey, Rich. Yeah, good morning, Dan. Good morning, Amy. Good morning. Um, what I wanted to say is, Chicago, is Chicago willing uh, now to give up their so-called uh, core values of being a sanctuary city just to stop the number of uh, illegals coming into Chicago? And what happened to uh, the, the city saying that they welcome everyone? Have a good weekend. Well, Thanks, they're still Rick. welcoming everyone. They're just trying to have the voters decide. And I give credit to Alderman Beale and Alderman Lopez, and I know you and I probably differ on that, but I'm glad that they're trying to make this a decision where the citizens can decide. Well, they can't decide. It's an well, advisory referendum. Advisory if, they, referendum. if they get it on the ballot, it would perhaps perhaps, perhaps embarrass uh, the power structure in the city and the county. Perhaps not. I mean, it's unclear to me that it would— uh, that it would be a resounding no, we don't want to be a sanctuary city. Obviously, there's some fear that that is the case, which is why BLM Brandon and his allies are blocking it. 
So, I mean, I give Lopez some credit. I give Tony Bia less credit, but I give them some credit for raising the issue. But um, it's taken a long time. And there's more that can and should be done than just an advisory referendum on the ballot. And if you live in the city, see how your alderman voted. Of course, mine voted against it, which will... I'm going to write him an email. Not that I'll care, but you should say something. Don't just sit there and let them walk all over you. Tom in Blue Island. Hey, Dan and Amy. Uh, Dan, Amy, great segment earlier about the migrant shelters being put up, you know, or opened despite uh, the argument that they're just considering it. I do a lot of work in Roseland, 115th and Halstead area, and there's been activity over there for months. And regardless of what they're saying, they're going to put the migrants there at some point. And the question I wanted to ask earlier, Dan, is that Roseland is not Lakeview. And you mentioned that gentleman, you know, from I think it was Venezuela that had been arrested four times and released. What What's the political play going to be when some little old lady gets mugged or or worse over in Roseland? Because I assure you this, those people are tough. And the idea that they're just going to stand there and take it is not going to happen. And I'm just wondering what you think the political response to that is going to be, Dan. Uh, You mean the the political response from the, the neighborhood, not the political response from City Hall, you mean? Right. I assume. Uh, I don't know what the political response from the neighborhood. I mean, it's a it's powder keg. Political response from BLM Brandon will be, you know, and and his ilk will be the typical denunciation of the particular act, but defense of the overall policy that makes uh, acts like that more likely. That's that's what you'll get, and then you'll have you'll hear what you're hearing from. The uh, Biden administration, you know, we're against hate. We've got a national strategy to counter anti-Semitism. And now yesterday, uh, Kamala Harris, or maybe it was Don Lemon, I'm not sure which, Don uh, announced a national strategy to combat Islamo, uh, Islamic discrimination, uh, anti, uh, you know, Islam, anti-Muslim hate and so on and so forth. So that's what you'll, you'll get. You'll get the middling of the issue. We're against hate while we foment it. That's what you'll get. Um, the interesting thing, too, about the migrant shelters, yeah. uh, I know this has been raised. We could raise it again. Do you think there's anything to their decision to put up these 10 cities, these so-called base camps on places in places like Brighton Park or Roseland, uh, as opposed to utilizing um, vacant commercial or industrial spaces, uh, shuttered CPS schools or thinly populated CPS schools? You think there's a, why wouldn't you use a structure that you, that exists, number one, um, that particularly a, a shuttered school oh, probably school can, can be, be retro, probably can be retrofitted more easily and, um, uh, and would be warmer in the winter, ostensibly. There are some high schools out there, and high schools are better than middle schools because high schools have plenty of showers. Why would they do the tent cities when you have all these vacant structures? Hmm. Matt's outside. Hey, good morning, Dan. Good morning, Amy. Last week I heard about a black-owned, female-owned bakery that was opening in Chicago, and uh, our governor was talking about how excited they made them. 
I'm not buying his reasons. I have a feeling uh, Pittsburgh gets just as excited whenever a new Dunkin' Donuts comes into the community as well. <laughs> All right, Matt. Hey, but I do real quick. Uh, earlier this week, we had a caller say, "Well, he called in and said that the Kmart at uh, I think it was Seventy Second and Pulaski, I believe, that was going to become a shelter. That is more than uh, it's ninety percent sure that that is going to be the next thing to fall. That location. Uh, Richard in Blue Island. Yeah. Hey, Dan and Amy. Um, Democrats love referring to Republicans as. Uh, MAGA Republicans, make America great again. Republicans should start using the phrase for Democrats as MASA Democrats, make America suck again. All right. Uh, Richard, Glenn, Orlando. Yeah, good morning, guys. Um, Where are all the people with the signs that had uh, hate has no home here when they were against Trump and everything? And we see a lot of hate in the Middle East. And where are all those people with those signs? Isn't hate hate no matter where it's at? And uh, I, I understand the social media companies are uh, are censoring uh, pro-Israeli things and not anti, and then not the uh, the terrorist thing, the Palestinian uh, positive things or something. Where's all that censorship going on? It's just it's it's hypocritical what's going on here. Thanks for the call, Glenn. Uh, I want to get to this uh, ordinance in the city of Chicago, this uh, employee leave ordinance. Uh, Employees accrue one hour of paid sick time for every 35 hours work, capped at 40 hours per year, and accrue one hour of uh, paid time off for every 35 hours work, capped at 40 hours per year. Um, so um, here's what that means to uh, a small business owner like uh, my friend who has a restaurant who emailed me about this. Let's give you a sense of it, what this means. So every week, a full-time employee earns more than two hours of paid leave each week. Um, I assume the best move for me is to pay people a percentage of that as a year-end bonus for the hours they don't take. That way, if you don't take time off unnecessarily, you get a nice bonus. But there's more. There's the carryover. At the end of a covered employee's 12-month accrual period, the covered employee shall be allowed to carry over to the following 12-month period up to 16 hours of paid leave and 80 hours of paid sick leave. The employer doesn't need to pay the covered employee for any unused paid leave and paid sick leave lost as a result of not being able to be carried over from one 12-month period to the other. However, if the employer denies a covered employee approval of their paid leave and paid sick leave in a manner that prohibits such covered employee from meaningfully having access to such paid time off, such employer must increase the covered employee's permissible carryover to include carryover of any such denied paid leave or paid sick leave. So how this works in the real world, back to my friend. So if I pay a bonus for attendance, it doesn't wipe off the unused leave, especially not the sick leave, for which they can carry over two years' worth, plus whatever's accrued that current year. Aside from a cash grab against small businesses, it's a huge accounting and personnel nightmare. We're going to spend a ton of time dealing, uh, defending ourselves against claims. For a mid-to-large company, that's not hard, but I don't have a personnel department. Now I might have to hire someone to manage that nightmare. And this only scratches the surface. I'm certain it's going to get worse. The only way to manage it properly so it's not a bomb waiting to go off in our faces is to hire someone to manage these 12 to 15 people and make sure there's no backlash. Right now we use ADP, which is an expensive payroll services, but, but they don't have the ability to manage this, so I'll probably need to hire a person, a personnel person. But also that person will need to be versed in this Kafkaesque ordinance, so it'll be 
So it so it will be some pay twenty five to thirty a dollar an hour or about eighty grand a year. Maybe I can find some good or part time wow. person, but it still nets out to a huge cost to small to a small business. And uh, you know, to that, it's just hey, that's just uh, doing business in the big city, just like uh, being a crime victim is just big city living. Now uh, this is, of course. Uh, opposed by the Illinois Restaurant Association. So, the, oh, so they're on they're the job. Oh, now they're going to stand up? Okay. They're not standing up. This is a pro forma opposition. You think they're going to, Sam Toya and company are going to spend any political Being capital? facetious, yes. Right. Um, so here's my response to this, what the city's actually doing. And this is, like, you have to understand their mentality. People always sort of take it like, they take these proposals in the light most generous to those advancing these proposals, and you shouldn't. What I said to my friend is, they're betting you won't close up shop. And if you do, a bigger restaurant group or retailer will take over. They don't like small businesses any more than they like the little guy. You're nuisances. The bigger players, as he said, can absorb the costs and push consolidation of industries. They might complain a bit, like the Illinois Restaurant Association, but that allows Pauls to pretend like they're sticking it to the fat cats on behalf of their employees. They know Chicago's electorate will never be able to connect those dots, and the pushback from groups like the Illinois Restaurant Association will be pro forma but not punishing politically. I mean, you have to understand they actually despise having to deal with all of these independent actors, either on an individual level or a small business level. They they are for the big guys. While they take criticism from some corporate interest, and they say we're standing up to the big corporate interests on behalf of their poor downtrodden employees, and they're doing just the opposite. All right. Uh, Lee and Hammond. Hey, guys. You know, since uh, uh, as far as these migrants, uh, the Catholic Charities is one of the biggest NGOs that's actually been facilitating bringing them in here. When is the Archdiocese of Chicago going to open up all these empty churches and start putting these people in these buildings? I mean, they got to keep the utilities on to maintain the buildings. They're empty. They're sitting there empty. I can think of three of them right on the southeast side that are empty right now. And there's usually a rectory next door with shower facilities, a kitchen. They've got halls. When, are, when is the Catholic Archdiocese of Chicago going to step up and uh, take care of these people? They profess to be for the common man. Well, when are they going to? When are they going to? You know, start pulling their weight here. Thanks for the call. Yeah, live their values. Live your values, Cardinal Supich. He's an open borders guy. Oh yeah. Well then, step up and do your part. I haven't heard anything from Supich on on this matter. That's a good point. Uh, Mary in Elmwood Park. Hi, Dan and Amy. I just wanted to make a couple of quick comments about the segment you did yesterday with uh, about Rebecca Todd Peters, the feminist theologian. Um, first, you know, she, she says directly, the only way I can be a Christian is to be a feminist Christian. And it brought to mind for me something Cardinal George said once, which is we are Christians on Christ's terms, not on our terms. So mm. we don't set the terms for who gets to be, you know, Jesus does that. So, uh, you know, she seems to have created a God of her own making. But um, secondly, you know, regarding her comments on abortion, what she and, and others, abortion advocates who, who try to, 
you know, make the case that it there is a, such a thing as, you know, God-loving abortion or something like that, whatever other nonsense she said. The earliest manual of Christian discipline, which was called the Didache, which was written by the very first followers of Christ, many of whom knew him and followed him, explicitly condemned abortion by name in a Roman Empire where it was widely practiced. So it was 100% clear to the first followers of Christ that abortion was completely incompatible with following him. And so they wrote up this kind of manual for the new way and how they were going to live it, and abortions mentioned specifically and by name. So, you know, she likely knows this as someone who has studied Scripture, and it, it's, it's really irksome. It's just one in the, in the long litany of lies that abortion supporters tell, you know, and I think as we, as we approach the 2024 elections, I hope people are mindful of these kind of things so that they can, um, you know, contradict them. But, you know, she also talks about something called the, the abortion imaginary. And she says, you know, women who have had abortions have had their, their voices silenced. And really, you know, from my perspective, the only women uh, who have had abortions who are getting their abortions silenced are the ones who regret them. I mean, you look at, you know, uh, poor Britney Spears. I've just finished reading that uh, book that mm-hmm. she wrote. And she had the poor thing. Yeah, Amy, she, you know, Justin Timberlake. She wanted to keep that baby that she had with Justin Timberlake. She And she makes it very clear in the book, I didn't want to have an abortion, but he said he wasn't ready to be a father. And he said, you know, there's plenty of time and blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, he arranges for her to have a private abortion at home, which was excruciating for her because he didn't want anyone to know that she'd had the abortion. And then after she did it, he turned around and he left her anyway and went and started, you know, a family. And that's when you can kind of trace back to her really starting to spiral I mean, the poor thing is really, I mean, she made a very poor choice, and she made other poor choices as well. I'm not excusing that, but I think you can trace a lot of that back to post-abortion trauma and post-abortion aftermath. Thank you for the call, Mary. Uh, Chuck and Delavan. Hey, Super Sean, this matter was a great fan. Thanks for mentioning him. Hey, karaoke tonight at Foley's for me. And so much talk about this marijuana, I don't use it, but I medicate myself with Tito's. I'm lifting the ban today on zero tolerance and alcohol on my job site. And starting the weekend early because I'm turning 68 on Sunday. Party on, everybody. I'll see you around. Happy birthday, Chuck. Rock out at uh, the karaoke bar tonight, Chuck. Uh, Thank you so much. Open Mic Friday sponsored by Turnkey.pro, your small business partner. Visit them online at Turnkey.pro. This is the morning show. More Chicago radio listeners are choosing. This is Chicago's morning answer on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.